Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Modern Day Debate, as we are thrilled to have you here for this epic debate and panel. And want to let you know, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics, and also want to let you know we hope that you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you are from. And so with that, I'm going to kick it over with our co-host for the night, Dylan Burns. We are thrilled to have you here, who also hosts debates on his channel all the time. So highly want to encourage you folks to check out the links, not only of Dylan, who does host debates at his channel all the time, but also of all of our speakers, as we're very thankful to have them here. And with that, Dylan, thanks for being with us and co-hosting. The floor is all yours. Dylan Burns, I'm the host of the Hippy Dippy Roundtable, the Hippy Dippy Championship, and many other hopefully lovely programs that you all uh, hopefully know about at this point. You can find me at twitch.tv slash Dylan Burns TV. Today, we're going to be talking about critical race theory and transphobia. We're going to take it straight over to the guests. But once again, I'm happy to be collabing with James because together we're a tag team that cannot be beat. We're going to start with Destiny, who's going to tell us about his channel and his thoughts on the topic. Um, hi, my name is Destiny. Uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Destiny, youtube.com slash Destiny, or Instagram or tiktok.com slash Destiny. Um, are we, I'm broadly considered like a social Democrat, and I'm pretty far left-leaning socially. I'm fairly left-leaning economically, depending on who you talk to. Um, in terms of critical race theory, uh, I think that a lot of the fundamental assumptions that critical race theory asserts are probably pretty like agreeable to most people. Um, I think that some of the ways that it's played out publicly uh, is maybe been a little bit problematic. So like some of the, like we read through some of the curriculum for some math stuff today that was pretty cringy. Um, but in standard fashion, conservatives like hyper exaggerate some of these negative parts or make some stuff up um, like that guy on Tucker Carlson does. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll probably be advocating broadly speaking for the concept of critical race theory um, while acknowledging that it has some problematic implementations that we can improve on. Okay, next we're going to move in over to Actual Justice Warrior, also known as Sean, and his co-host, The Skeleton. Oh. Yeah, so uh, I'm Sean. You can find me on YouTube at the YouTube channel Actual Justice Warrior. Uh, I'm libertarian-leaning, conservative, whatever you want to call it. Doesn't really matter. Um, as for my position on critical race theory and whether or not it should be taught in our public schools, the answer is absolutely not. I don't want conspiracy theories taught in our school. I don't want an insane racist dogma being taught in our schools. So I will be coming out 100% against it. And not just for um, its impact on white students, there's actually elements of critical race theory that are incredibly harmful for black people, the very same people that supposedly this framework is designed to help and appeal to. Wonderful. Thank you for throwing it back to me when I just put some chips in my mouth. Now we're gonna throw it over to Riley. One of my best, uh, close personal friends. Oh my God, thank you. Um, yeah, hey everyone, my name is Riley Grace Roshong. Um, I talk about largely law and public policy. Um, I'm a dual JD master's in public policy student um, here in Maryland. I'm involved in Maryland politics and I talk about, you know, I just try to read up on academic literature and see what good policy is what. Um, so on critical race theory, 
Um, and I'm going to be trying to do the best I can because like some people, like I, I worry that in a lot of these conversations, people will accuse each other of like straw manning. But here, um, from listening to a lot of different perspectives on critical race theory, it seems that there's not like one coherent definition of what it is. And a lot of people take it to mean very different things. So just based on what I've heard, um, here's kind of like the major tenets, right? It's like systemic racism exists in the U.S. today through our legal system, which is something I agree with. Um, a reason that systemic racism exists is because even if we don't have laws which explicitly discriminate against people of color, we still have laws which disparately impact people of color, and we have not adequately dealt with the effects of those laws which did explicitly uh, discriminate against people of color, which I also agree with. Some things I don't agree with are like that the reasons that systemic uh, racism exists, which is pushed by some people, you hear that like racism is inherent in society since it benefits white people. That's an argument that people make that I disagree with. People argue that white people do not fight against racism since they're not incentivized to, which there can be some arguments to make there, but I probably wouldn't agree in some of the ways I've heard it made. Um, and that systemic racism is done in order to prevent like um, the rise of communism. And this is where you hear a lot of people arguing that like, oh, um, uh, critical race theory is inherently linked to like Marxism, right? Um, to some extent, like a materialist analysis can be beneficial, but there are some people who actually will go out and like make a lot of like very far left arguments, um, which I think I'm broadly opposed to. Um, so those are like what critical race theory is. Is it being taught to children? It's so, like teaching it in schools. Uh, no, it's not being taught in schools. It's being taught primarily at the graduate level. Should it be taught at the graduate level? Probably. I mean, like in the same way that we teach lots of different things at graduate level to people who are able to access them. Um, and all that's to be said that like, uh, you know, people usually are bringing this up now as kind of like a way um, to focus on like lower schools to try and prevent the teaching of any kind of racism. And we probably shouldn't allow that to happen since this isn't really a problem at like the K through 12 education level. Um, so, you know, we want to make sure that we're still teaching about racism in schools. Um, and it would probably be reasonable to keep this to like more graduate levels. Um, that, those are probably my thoughts. Wonderful. Uh, now that we're done with introductions, uh, I guess we're just going to throw it over to a general discussion. And I'm going to ask you all that, of course, while it's not a rule to be nice, make sugar your favorite spice. Uh, you may all begin. Okay, so I, I just want to make a couple of things clear. Critical race theory is not teaching about the civil rights history of the United States of America. It's not teaching about negative history or history that doesn't look positively on the United States of America. It's a specific ideology that was developed in universities in response to disciplines like civil rights disciplines and like critical legal studies. And to my knowledge, the reason that we're talking about this is because of the potential for implementation in K through 12 education, not necessarily in the, um, in the university level. Is that not the case? Did I like misread <clears throat> the parameters Can, of the debate? I think that's pretty true. Can I, I'm just curious, um... What is your impression of why it was developed in response to things like critical legal studies? Well, they tell us that they don't like the fact that there were too many white people in these disciplines, that specifically for the civil rights discipline. It was almost like a counter like movement against that. And it was the idea that um, like white scholars could not represent the actual experiences of these black people. So I believe it was in the 70s, they, and correct me if I'm wrong on the year, because eh, whatever, I read it a little while ago. Um, they, they were trying to discourage uh, white people from writing about race in academia and forming this new discipline for them to better like articulate what they're feeling in society. It's very much reliant on feelings, which is one of the problems with it. 
And it also avoids outside scrutiny from other parts of academia because it actually, this is like intentional, it claims that it's being critical of those like outside institutions that do normal academic scrutiny. So it doesn't even subject itself to the normal rules of academia. So I don't understand why we would allow these people to implement their curriculum in our public schools. So well, well, quick, just, uh, just on the line of questioning. So <clears throat> critical race theory uh, developed. Um, so we listened earlier to Derek Bell talk about this. The reason why critical race theory developed in response to critical legal studies is because the idea of analyzing certain things. So in this case, the criminal justice system, just through the lens of laws, seems like it wasn't perfectly explanatory for some of the things that people wanted to look at. So, for instance, when we look at something like Brown v. Board of Education, um, if the 14th Amendment has existed for so long, why would it take so long for the Supreme Court to overrule like segregation of schools? Um, if you look at it through a critical legal studies lens, it's very hard to make arguments based on precedent. It's very hard to make arguments based on new legal analysis. It seems like you're missing something in terms of how you analyze um, these particular rulings. So we need like another lens or another tool that we can view uh, these kinds of legal changes through. And then this was largely in the mid seventies, I think where uh, critical race theory came in, where it was more like, well, what's another critical theory that we can use? to kind of critique or add to our understandings of, um, you know, like the, the legal process in the United States. So insofar as that's concerned, I mean, that's pretty convincing to me that um, the idea of analyzing the legal system only through laws is a little bit silly. It's pretty obvious that our um, legislature, even all the way up to the Supreme Court, is going to be influenced by the society around us and an intersection of other things and not just like, you know, letter of the law. Um, so insofar as that goes, I don't think that it's like a wholly absurd method or a wholly absurd way of uh, analyzing, you know, structures in society, especially the legal system, because there are things that like a, a, a critical legal studies take would miss. It seems to be the case. And also, Sean, can I like respond on the point about like the, uh, oh, well, there are some people in this movement who don't want white people talking about it? Because I mean, um, I read some of the literature earlier today, um, and we can come back to this more if you want to. It doesn't seem to be the case that it's just the rule is white people cannot talk about this, but it's rather recognizing that because white people do not have the shared, the shared lived experience of people of color, that they're less likely, not necessarily the case, but they're going to be less likely to understand those kinds of experiences than people who don't come from that experience. I kind of get that because like as a trans person and there's always trans discourse happening, as will be the case later in the panel. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that like cis people can't talk about these issues, right? Like obviously there are a lot of cis people who contribute a lot to the discourse. Um, but also, you know, there can be cis people who don't recognize some things because they don't have that shame, that same lived experience. And simultaneously, there can also be trans people who also don't have the greatest arguments just because they're trans, right? It's just a likelihood thing, you know? Um, that's not to say that there probably aren't people out there who will take that to the extra mile and say like, oh, no white people can talk about that. Those people are silly, don't listen to them, and I will criticize them as much as is needed to. But like, it's more about just recognizing likelihoods. Let's give Sean uh, several minutes to respond to both points. Okay, so on, on the point about how um, lived experiences aren't shared across all demographics, yeah, I can understand that in, like I can understand that like premise. But the problem is we're talking about an academic discipline. And when we're talking about an academic discipline, there needs to be some way to verify, check. There needs to be some scrutiny. What you find in a bunch of critical race theory is storytelling, is people talking about their personal experiences and they use as a shield of criticism, the fact that they are often personally hurt. So you'll 
most of these critical race theory scholars are scholars of color. And they'll be telling a story that happened to them in their real life, which is, I guess, fine. Like, and a lot of them are sad. Some of them are ridiculous, but a lot of them are sad. And I feel sorry for that person in that story. But we're talking about a discipline that is that is supposed to be implemented in our public schools. And you can extrapolate off of a story only so much. And I have examples of these stories and the wild extrapolations from them that I would love to go over with you if you think that this is something that we need to be teaching in our public schools. Um, I mean, like, that's not to say, I mean, like quantitative or qualitative data can be useful to an extent. It's just important to be able to recognize the difference between qualitative and quantitative data, right? Like, you know, like stories and like individual, like, um, you know, individual anecdotes, like they can be useful, but it's primarily important to make sure that we're um, using them to be able to demonstrate larger phenomena that's otherwise qualitatively provable. But that's not to say that they don't have any use, right? Now, if these are being used in place of quantitative data, then yeah, then there's a valid criticism to be had there. But as far as I'm aware, like a lot of these issues usually have some kind of quantitative data to be able to back them, right? So, you know, being able to have the stories in that instance can be beneficial to see how these things actually play out in people's lives. So, so I think what's happening here is we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what critical race theory is because I've spent you know, a good amount of time reading over this in preparation for this. And the idea that we have um, we could check these stories or this myth making against more objective numbers and like that is somehow a counterbalance is something that is completely divorced from critical race theory. They reject objective metrics as white supremacy or indicative of the overall white culture. They say objective truth is just the dominant culture's truth. This is why I like this a, taught. Sorry, do you have just like an example of that? Oh, so a... <laughs> Okay, so a perfect example of this comes from Regina Austin and her promotion of conspiracy theories. So Regina Austin is at the uh, Pennsylvania School of Law and she's claimed that OJ Simpson, Clarence Thomas, Malcolm X, Marion Barry, the Coors Brewing Company and Church's Fried Chicken have all been the subject of, of uh, what you call anti-black conspiracy theories. But what got her in a little bit of trouble is when she was called out for promoting the conspiracy theory that AIDS was created by the United States government. And when and her response to this, and you can find this in her readings, was that, well, it might not be literally true that AIDS was created by the United States government, but it's spiritually correct, which is a, something that Ocasio-Cortez obviously borrowed for her famous quote. And much and the reason it's spiritually correct is because it reminds us of the Tuskegee experiments. And like in the Tuskegee experiments, it's not really a point about whether or not the, um, the source of AIDS is the US government, just like the source of syphilis wasn't the US government. What really matters is that the US government has the cure. So it's very conspiratorial. And when confronted on their conspiracy theorizing, this is how they respond, or this is at least how Regina Austin responded. So yeah, like they reject objective metrics and but how they is that? promote and excuse negative behaviors. Well, how is that like representative? Because I mean, like that doesn't seem well, I mean, to really connect with the idea. Well, how does that connect to critical race theory? Because I like, yeah, like if we're going to like to spread what amounts to a lie um, or at least to spread an accusation that's unsan that's unsubstantiated that the government spread AIDS or that the government created um, AIDS for some kind of purpose. Like, yeah, that's condemnable. But like, how does that connect back to to critical race theory. 
Like I'm missing that link it's right from now. from Regina Austin, critical race theory scholarist at Pennsylvania School of Law. She's one of but the how leading does that, scholars. But how does that make it? Like, like I we she's, like we so can take making, critical race theory so, and like look at what it is. So part and of I just critical, want to know like how part, this so is part applying. of critical race theory is excusing negative behaviors from the black community. Whatever behavior you could possibly find is excused by critical race theory. So when questioned about conspiracy theorizing, she said that this is okay because this is a way to fight back against the counterculture. And then even if it's not literally true, it's okay. It's spiritually true because it reflects the experience of of black Americans in this country. And her example was the Tuskegee experiments. This is a common theme throughout critical race theory literature is that whenever they're proven factually wrong on anything, they fall back to, well, what you don't understand is that these are the things that are related to we're living in a white supremacist society. And again, this is not an objective discipline. So like, this is not stuff I want taught in our schools. I guess that what I'm missing is that, like, I don't understand what makes it critical. Like, can you define to me, like, what you think from looking at the literature, what you think critical race theory is? Well, you read the scholars of critical race theory and they define it. Well, yeah, but what would, what's your impression of the literature? I mean, like, after having read it, like, what's your like takeaway? Your, your core tenets are a rejection of colorblindness, like I just said. There's excuse making for minorities for any type of behavior, no matter what it is. There's the rejection of, of integration as it's considered cultural genocide, which is repeated by many critical race theory scholars, including Patricia Williams. And I believe this guy's name is Gary Peller. Um, like these are the core tenets of it, that there's a white dominant culture and any move toward that dominant culture is cultural genocide. And that we I mean, should- it doesn't really, I mean, should, like some of those, I don't think um, are and, actually representative. Like the idea that critical race theory, like by definition, rejects any um, criticism of like when minorities do like take certain kinds of actions. Like, I just haven't seen that in like any of the, like you can bring up examples where people who are associated with it have tried to excuse it, but that doesn't seem to be like, like we could criticize those people and their excuses, but that doesn't I'll, seem to fit in with like what it is. I'll give you a perfect example. So Patricia Williams is, uh, is, an, is uh, an advocate against proper English being taught in our public schools, right? She believes that black people um, with, uh, they used to call it Ebonics. I forgot what the word is for it now. African-American vernacular English, yeah. Yeah, Ebonics. So like they're, um, like that's their own distinct dialect and that it serves them well in their communities and forcing them to learn English is improper. Like it's, it's, it's a form of cultural genocide. Now this is incredibly harmful to the black community. And the reason why it's incredibly harmful is when's the last time you saw a math textbook written in Ebonics or a chemistry textbook written in Ebonics? The reason we have a common language and the reason people are trying through the public education system to get people to read and write appropriately is because you're basically putting them behind the eight ball by not doing so. But it is viewed again as a form of cultural genocide to go in the direction of speaking proper English or as it is called in critical race theory, cracker English. I got well. So wait, real quick, before before we go too far into this, um, I hate the way this is set up because it feels like a two in one. So we, yeah, this is really yeah. Um, But before we go too into this, um, it it might it might not even be worth discussing critical race theory. It might actually just be worth discussing the foundations of critical race theory because it might be the case that we either completely agree or disagree with each other based on our agreement or disagreement with those foundations. Um, So, for instance, when we talk about like um, when we talk about like teaching. Uh, African-American vernacular English versus like uh, contemporary English or whatever. Um, it's 
probably a good thing that we all like have a common language that we speak, but to claim that that AAVE or Ebonics as we want to call it, to claim that that's like a separate language is not necessarily true. Um, it's not like it's random. It's just another dialect that's emerged in English speech or more precisely in American speech. Um, I, I mean, we can talk about like, I think any of these particular like foundational things, like should AAVE be taught or not taught or should we encourage or discourage it? Um, or, you know, like, should we teach that upholding certain norms is a form of cultural genocide? Like, we should pr we probably have to hammer out our, our conversations on those topics. Otherwise, we're just going to be speaking past each other to where one person is going to support critical race theory because they believe in these underlying foundations versus another person obviously disagrees, not because they disagree with critical race theory, but because they disagree with the underlying foundations of it. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, like, I'm fine. I mean, like, I don't personally, for the reasons I laid out earlier, really like adopt it as like, a, I, don't, I don't find it to be the most useful framework, personally. Um, like the idea is like, there are some people who interpret it to be like, oh yeah, the reason why um, systemic racism exists is or in order to perpetuate a system of hierarchy that specifically benefits white people, um, which I don't think is satisfied. And there does seem to be like a lot of speculation there. Um, but I mean, like as far as a lot of the other tenants, you know, like acknowledging that we should probably be able to like teach some form of systemic racism in school, like, yeah, we, we can discuss a lot of the premises. Um, we can I'm start with, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm not against teaching the history of racism in schools. And again, like I have to ask, what is it exactly this debate about? Because if we're just talking randomly about critical race theory, that gets us nowhere. Like I was led to believe that this would be about whether or not this should be imported into the classroom, like what's going on nationwide. You have a bunch of votes up and down on whether or not this is going to be incorporated in the curriculum. Um, California um, passed a law a couple of years ago. They have yet to implement the curriculum that requires this as a as a um, a graduation requirement. I thought that's what we were discussing. And to me to discuss that, it would be logical to discuss what's in critical race theory textbooks, what the major figures have written about the subject and the ridiculous extrapolations that they make based on their anecdotal experience that isn't very valuable. Well, so yeah, that's I, so I agree, but that's what I'm saying is we should probably focus on because if you believe in all of the core tenets of critical race theory, you're going to probably think it should be implemented. But if you don't, then you're probably going to think it should be implemented. So it seems like it would just make more sense to talk about like what fundamental aspects of critical race theory do we accept or reject and then kind of move from there would be my guess. So like I, that, that would be my suggestion. So you listed out earlier some things that I've heard that most people won't, um, that, that most people like, there's some commonly shared elements of critical race theory, um, like upholding like a certain type of society can be considered a, a form of white supremacy, or the teaching of AAVE as a dialect versus incorrect speak or something. Uh, I, I mean, like we could, I mean, we could focus in even on the, um, on the African American vernacular English or what, yeah, that, but I, because it just, if we argue like, yeah, CRT should be taught. Oh, no, it shouldn't be taught. We're not really arguing over CRT. We're arguing about the underlying ideas. This is what it feels like to me. Or we should be. Sorry, go ahead. Somebody say something. Jesus Christ. You're fine. I mean, like, also just a comment on the uh, um, oh, on the voting nationwide. My understanding is that, like, a lot of the voting has been um, specifically at the state level um, on states outlawing the teaching in public schools. Um, my understanding of a lot of that legislative discussion has been specifically looking at, like, um, like a lot of more conservative figures trying to push to outlaw it in schools. And it seems to be, and I mean, like, this isn't necessarily the case, but um, a lot of people are talking about it as if it's already being taught in schools or as if a lot of people are like pushing for it. And I'm just not sure if the evidence is quite there that a lot of people really want it. Um, and rather that people um, and rather that this is being used as like a stand-in issue to prevent the teaching of like broader issues related to race and racism. 
I mean, critical race theory is already being taught in schools. I did a segment on the Edina uh, school district in, in, um, in Minnesota that was teaching uh, this. They, they called it uh, an equity curriculum and it required everybody that's on the staff, including the bus drivers to be trained in dismantling white supremacy. So there are isolated pockets that form the basis for people trying to restrict this. There's also been a greater push to add this into school curriculums post the death of George Floyd. Like, so yeah, we see major news stories about states and local municipalities having hearings about it at their school boards and voting it up or down. But yeah, it has been implemented probably mostly in the electives. Like California has it in its electives right now. They haven't implemented it as a graduation requirement. But yeah, it's this is what we're discussing, no? Well, yeah, well, so mean, to like, be clear real quick on that, right? So when we say critical race theory is being implemented, even in elementary school curriculum, that's not really the case. Staff training is going to be a bit different than like the curriculum that's taught to kids. Because it, it feels like a little bit of a bait and switch where like conservatives will talk about the evils of critical race theory. And then you think, oh my God, they're teaching this was teaching this to the kids. But in reality, what this actually comes out is like in the form of like, um, like sensitivity seminars or critical race theory, like seminars, or like a, a way of teaching in the classroom. That's not like teaching children critical race theory, but it's just like a different way to guide, to guide like how you teach your function in the classroom. It's a little bit differently. I, I, it's a little different, I think, than just saying like they're teaching critical race theory to our kids in schools, I think. I mean, so let me let me be clearer. Mm-hmm. They're teaching critical race theory to our kids in schools. Like I do a video series on uh, K-12 indoctrination in conjunction with an organization. And I have like 30 videos in the series. So like there are specific examples of this being implemented to children as young as kindergartners, where they're teaching them about their white privilege and the systemic oppression and how the system is rigged against their black students. So yeah, like they are teaching it. I'm just saying, I understand it's not necessarily even on a state level that it's being gotcha. taught in most cases. So okay, like there okay. are individual examples. This is what the reaction or the response is too. And there's sure. a greater push post Floyd. Um, can I just ask like how, so you gave like one example, do you have like um, any sources like on the example and like um, just like any source on like how widespread this is just like, so I can understand like the scale of like the issue of it being taught to children. Well, like I said, California has passed a law that says they have to come up with something. There's been sample curriculums that have been shot down. They have it in their elective courses. Uh, Adina Middle School, uh, Adina, uh, the Adina School District was one example. Like, I don't have them offhand. I didn't, like, review all my older videos on the topic, but, like, I do have an entire video series based on this. But there's well, then- like, examples every, like, they come up in the news every now and again. And what the organization that I do those videos with does, is they like combine them into an overall thing. So, I mean, I could look up what they got, but like, okay. Are- I mean, like, it just doesn't seem like a lot of the, like the lot of the conversation seems to match with like the scale of the issue, I guess is like my concern. Right. Cause I mean, like, um, you know, like we could probably make some kind of like, um, with the amount of national attention on this, and we could say that there's like a reasonable issue to be, to be had here, but it seems like a lot of people are using this um, or talking about it so much in the national eye compared to how much is actually happening to the point where it seems like it's a stand-in for some kind of other issue that people are trying to discuss rather than the actual issue itself. Does that make sense? Like, I, I just want to communicate that like, it seems like the reaction from a lot of people has been disproportionate to the size of the issue as it currently stands. Um, to the point where it makes me wonder if there's some kind of other motivation for people engaging in the subject matter. Does that make sense? Well, I, sure, but I like that's, 
like there are examples and like again this is like saying like it's not that big of a, an issue like i didn't pick the topics for this like well, i'm not is, saying i'm not saying it's an issue like i'm not saying it's not an issue either right like if children are being taught like hey the fact that you're white makes you inherently racist um like like and related things like that like yeah we i'll broadly agree like that is bad and children should not be taught that right like it's, yeah it's, i agree it just seems like the reaction that people have had if it's only in like one or a handful of schools is for the amount of attention it's getting nationally it seems like other people are trying to use this as a stand-in issue for other you know just like talking about racism generally yeah well um destiny referenced earlier that he was looking over some math courses on a stream i didn't watch that stream but would that would that be the math courses that were proposed in oregon and california um, probably the one talking about like, um, how black people need to run around the room to learn math. This is really stupid. Like, I'm so I mean, they're paraphrasing it, a bit, but yeah, this is, there is a push to implement this. Like it's like, like saying, oh, well, it's not that many places. I mean, like if I was a parent, which I'm not, this would be something that I would be concerned about. And again, no. like, even beyond that, there's like a bunch of pushes for equity that try to teach things like, like I was talking about before that like Ebonics is just as valid a form of English. And as I previously stated, this sets back the black community. It makes it harder for them to read in schools. There's a reason that in, in India and in China, all these places where English is becoming a, a second language or has already become a second language, they're learning proper appropriate English because it's the language of international business. So a curriculum that rejects this is harmful to black students. Yeah, um, I guess that like what I'm asking here, let me ask this question. Do you think it's at least reasonable to come to the conclusion that like a, a one of the motivations for why this is so widespread in America at the moment, why like a ton of major news outlets are talking about this at this moment, do you think it's at least reasonable to surmise that like one of the reasons why since it's a relatively small scale issue is because other people are using it as a stand in for like you know, trying to prevent the talk about racism at all in K through 12? Like, do you think that's at least, like, even if you don't necessarily um, think that's the case yourself, do you think it's at least reasonable that that could be why uh, some people are motivated in this discussion? No, I don't think it's about trying to prevent discussions of racism. Again, it's like, if you talk to these people, they seem fine with teaching, like, the ideals of, like, the civil rights movement or, or like, or certain like negative history of the United States of America. It's about the way that critical race theory frames it. Again, this is a movement that was anti-civil rights scholarship. It's anti the concept of colorblindness. So I well, think then why is it only, and, why is and it only getting attention for the, for now? The, well, for the outsized interest, well, the reason it's getting attention now is post George Floyd, there's been a push to implement this more and more. Any issue that involves angry parents gets disproportionate attention in the United States of America because children like somebody think of the children there's an entire simpsons character based around this concept that's as old as time so like that's not unusual we're talking about the implementation in public schools also this involves our tax dollars so it's like do i want my tax dollars financing something that by its very definition is pushing a political ideology in fact critical race theory scholars are often saying that you're trying to put forward a political goal or political goals in their work and they need to bias it towards those political goals in order to counteract the bias in what is called objective reality. We'll give you a chance well, to respond, I mean, Riley. Uh, to be fair to like critical race theory, usually what critical theory entails is that they try to see, um, like they, they do 
own that they marry like prescriptive and descriptive thought in that like they try to engage with a, a lens that aims to improve society as opposed to just describing society as it is, right? Like that does seem to be the case. I'm not sure if that's necessary. Like you could say that's a critique for why you shouldn't use it, but I'm not sure if that's something to be said against like the tool itself, if that makes sense, right? Like that's not necessarily a reason why it shouldn't be taught to just like improve society. I mean, the reasons that it shouldn't be taught, it's not like, yeah, anybody could say they're trying to improve society. The reasons that I said it shouldn't be taught is they don't subject themselves to scrutiny from other parts of academia. They reject that scrutiny as uh, as what you call as part of being absorbed into like the white dominance of objective academia. Like they they're pretty obvious about this. The emphasis on storytelling and anecdotes that don't really connect to overall things and crazy extrapolations like I like it's the examples that like I'm ready to give, like if you want to hear some of them are just well, sure. Um, let, then let me ask the question then, because I know we, I know you brought up um, some examples earlier. So I know that you brought up um, the example with the person who um, gave the unsubstantiated claim about the AIDS crisis. And I can agree that that's something bad, but now I'm starting to wonder, like if we get into examples and, you know, we can go through them if you want to, like, I guess I'm worried about describing things which may not be necessarily representative of the movement, but which are extremely bad examples of this idea or of this framework, right? It, it's an academic, it's an academic discipline. Like we're, I'm going over the like foundational people in this academic discipline. I specifically didn't go after the easy targets like Ibram X. Kendi because people can argue that Ibram X. Kendi is relatively new on the scene and he's gained popular and all that. So I went back even further to look at like foundational books. Like for instance, Patricia Williams, who wrote the book in, and I think it came out in 1989 called The Rooster's Egg, which is just a series of her telling stories and making wild extrapolations based on those stories, has a section in there about how she went into one store and she saw a comparable black doll that was discounted compared to a white doll. And she extrapolated from that that capitalism perpetuates white supremacy and the devaluation of black people from one store. Like this is not a serious discipline. And this book, it, look it up, look up the reviews. You'll see all the big names saying it's a seminal work in criminal uh, in critical race theory. Patricia Williams, I believe still teaches at Columbia Law. Like this is what we're talking about. This is the foundation of the discipline. Like, I want to give you a, a chance sale at one store is evidence of capitalism being racist. I want to give you a chance to respond if you'd like, Riley. Also, then, it is true, a three-person panel. We lost a person two hours before we started. And so it is a different, you could say, vibe with three people. So we do want to ask, Destiny, any thoughts on what's been discussed so far? And then, Riley, if you do want a, a chance to respond after that, we'll give you a chance before we go to a, a particular question that ha somebody had offered in the chat. Um, well, I... I... Um, I think I'll, I, I'll let them go down a line of questioning and then I'll jump in. I don't want to like, she gives a huge response to him and then I give him a whole bunch of shit to deal with. And then he has to respond to her and me. And then it's like a huge cluster mark. So I'm just, I'm you kind of letting them go. Appreciate yeah. it. I like it. Go ahead, yeah. Riley. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm trying to understand like, um, and I can understand that that's like, so I think that there's a valid critique that like, um, the foundation, like, um, that you can have someone who you're so like you're alleging essentially that this person is representative of the movements and she's one of the founding authors 
Um, and right now, I guess I'm wondering, because I've been reading a lot of the literature, I assume the same as you in preparation for this, and it doesn't seem to be like that's an accurate representation of where a lot of people are at with the um, with the ideas um, as they currently stand, right? Like it seems to be more focused on the idea that um, that there are certain forms of systemic discrimination that can exist in society, regardless of whether or not they're explicit or implicit, that can end up creating like social hierarchy between different racial categories there's variations there's not like a concrete definition but it seems really weird to take like one person um who may not be representative of the movement as it currently stands and say this is the entirety of it right like that doesn't seem to be charitable to what critical race theory um says for itself nowadays i mean but you're giving me like vagaries when i'm giving you specifics and again i'm not taking like here's a person that said something about critical race theory. Like I'm highlighting foundational works like a rooster's egg or the rooster's egg uh, is a foundational work in the in the arena of critical race theory. Like you can look it up. I'm not like nonsensing you. I'm sure you'll find it on Wikipedia. I mean, um, like I've so, listened to several people talk about it as well. I mean, like, sure, we can go into examples, like, but I these, mean, like these, um, are, these are examples that are in there. And again, it's an overall it. And like, this isn't something like that's like conspiratorial or something that's outside the norm. Like these have always been the criticisms of this discipline that it relies on storytelling and lived experience. And it avoids scrutiny because oftentimes the authors or the people telling the stories happen to be black or non-white themselves. And they're reaching from their own experience and they're telling us about the pain that they endured. And it's not like you can build a discipline off of how some person subjectively feels when they're telling a story. Like that's not like that's not the, the good foundations of academia. And like this again, it's not something that is denied. They're saying they're trying to deconstruct our traditional views of knowledge in academia. They say that knowledge and objectivity comes from the dominant culture. I don't agree with that. That's why I don't want it taught in the schools. Well, do you think that you can reasonably parse out people who have engaged in this discipline, who have engaged in a way which is negligently and be able to otherwise still like um, preserve some of the ideas which are actually useful. Because I mean, I understand like you're, you're, citing, you're citing examples where if that is happening and to the extent it's happening, then yeah, that's, that's meritable of criticism. But it seems like, uh, this seems like throwing out the baby with the bathwater where it's, you know, I, I think that we can reasonably be able to criticize bad practices in academia while still otherwise preserving some good ideas because like what destiny said at the beginning you know like when we're engaging in discussion of the law especially as someone who is studying the law it is good to be able to look at the law through a lens other than just assuming that everyone is a perfectly rational actor always being able to come to conclusions in the law just based on precedent because that doesn't make sense either and you know there's worthy criticism to be had of that kind of perspective so wouldn't you agree that we could be able to preserve some of the useful aspects of this kind of thinking and be able to simultaneously criticize some people who have engaged with it in a negligent manner so i look i would agree with that if we're talking about like philosophy like utilitarianism and then i found like a dumb utilitarian argument i totally understand that but that's because the foundations of utilitarianism are somewhat consistent or mostly consistent but we're talking about critical race theory which specifically rejects objective knowledge so but that doesn't seem like, to be representative no. of where it's at now. Like if I I've looked at like several different sources and we can, I, you know, like you said, like I can send them to you as well. But I don't see anywhere in any of them that they say that like a central tenant is rejecting is rejecting objective knowledge. It's very much based on subjective knowledge and lived experience. And it again, critical race theory does not subject themselves 
to scrutiny from other parts of academia. And they literally say the idea of objectivity, of correctness. I mean, there was the math, the, the math example where like I've, I've seen the, the screenshots of the textbooks where they talk about how it's not necessarily about getting the right answer. It's the journey to get there. And that's not what math is about. Like it's like well, this, is a, this is a fundamental from... disagreement. Like, I mean, if you if you read David Bell, if you read um, what's the other guy's name, Delgado, I believe, like this is what they say. They don't hide this from you. So I don't know where you're getting sources that say, no, no, no. But sometimes we do accept objective knowledge if like your foundational writers clearly and unapologetically say this that objective knowledge is something that is biased and it comes from the dominant majority culture. I, I mean, my so, understanding, or sorry, go ahead. So I guess like, okay, I, just kind of like plugging into some of this. <clears throat> so I think that there are a lot of things that we take for granted in society. I think that there are different lenses that we can use to analyze said things in society. Um, and I think that like, there are some things that are packaged along with um, critical race theory that aren't necessarily the worst things. So, for instance, what you just said recently, um, there's a lot of different things you can pick out here, but I'll focus on two. So the idea that it's about, um, that math is about the journey to the answer. Math is absolutely about the journey. The answer is one of the least important parts of, of doing any type of math problem. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but if you've taken any higher level math, um, the, the understanding the processes is a billion times more important than winding up with the correct answer. Um, or at least in my calc assignments uh, or, or, or on your tests, like if you had had like a 10 point problem, I don't think it was uncommon for like the answer would be worth like two points or three points maybe, but like showing your work and all the different steps are going to be like where the majority of the points are given on a round. Like you could, you could pass a calc exam, like a calc B or C, you could pass these exams and, and get like half the answers wrong. If you showed your work every step of the way and just missed answers. Um, th that's not necessarily 100% baked into this, but uh, ju just on that math is about the journey, not the answer. There were a lot of cringy things in that critical race theory textbook about math, but there were also a lot of things that like are actually really true. We need to modernize the way that we teach math a lot because right now it's taught in a horrible way. Um, that's just kind of like one thing to the side. Um, a second thing is I think that this, so I'm going to sound like a critical race theory proponent. I think that we have a very Western centric view of some things like when we say objective fact or objective truth, I think we tend to look at things in a certain way where we believe that like, I'm going to, I'll, I'll go take, I'll take the full position, maybe because we're white or because it's Eurocentric or whatever, to where we have like a correct view of how to view um, like something like say history, that there are objective facts there. And that's how we view it. I think that it's good to take a step back and realize that when we look at like how events occur in history, that isn't actually really the case, even for white people, for black people, whoever, we don't actually have like these objective views of history. Like we very much kind of pick and choose um, which facts we want to account for, which facts we want to talk about. And then some things kind of fall off to the wayside. I don't know if I'm going to light a firecracker on this debate, but like a really good example that recently is like um, we have a big disagreement in this country right now over what happened in the last election, where I think around half the country believes that that election is fraudulent. So I find it a little bit um, hypocritical, I would guess, that we would look to like critical race theory and say it's absolutely ridiculous that you're going to reject the objective reality that all of us live and believe in when right now there is, and that's just on one issue, we can name the coronavirus or global warming or anything else, but we actually do have not only these objective truth divides in the U.S., but we have like we actually have like epistemic divides in terms of how we even arrive at truth. Um, I don't think that teaching that there is some subjectivity there is the worst thing in the world, when that does seem to be how most of us live our lives. Well, Look, I, I take your point about show your work in math classes, but like mathematics as a discipline is about getting objectively the correct answer. Like whether or not you get some points in school 
doesn't change the fact that if you're an accountant and you misreport profits or earnings, the SEC is going to come for you. And you can't say, well, I showed my work and it looks like I got everything right. I just forgot to do this or that. If you're trying to land a rover on Mars, like there's detailed math calculations that go into that. And when the rover misses Mars and ends up floating into space, you're not going to be able to go to the heads of NASA and say, hey, look, I showed my work, seemed about right, my bad. Like there's actually consequences for not act pursuing objectively right answers. And to the extent that show your work is graded, it's because they're saying that you're on the right path to going there. That's so a weird like little tangent to go on. As for like the examples of the election or whatever, like, yeah, there's adults that don't agree on things. Like that's fine. And history is way more subjective than people uh, believe because we're relying on the accounts of people. But critical race theory in our schools, at least in some of the ways that it's been uh, that has been proposed to be implemented, if not implemented, is not just about like the subjective, uh, like the subjective studies. And on top of that, it's not so much that it's objectively wrong that is my issue, which would be an issue. It's that they don't care about being objectively correct. It's a discipline that rejects objectivity. So I I don't think that it's oh man. Uh, we, we get into very strange epistemic discussions um, when we talk about objectivity because it's such a hard topic to get into, um, to, to visit really quick. So when we talk about like it is important to get the right answer for accounting or for landing things on Mars, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, those are jobs though, right? That's like where you're supposed to be, for the most part, done learning. I mean, you learn some job things, but like you're out of school now and now you have to compute the right answer. Um, but getting the right answer for jobs is going to be way different than like practicing like the, the journey to get there. Um, for instance, if you look at literally anything, it could be music, it could be sports, right? Um, you're never in your life going to play a basketball game where you have the opportunity to like throw like 100 free throws in a row, but that's how you practice, right? Um, you're never going to be in a game where you just, just do 100 free throws, but you practice every, right? And then much the same way in, in school, right? Learning fundamentals or learning different ways to learn is like, it's an important part of that, that quote unquote journey. Um, and I, I think that, especially when it comes to math, I think we have been hyper-focused on just like, get the right answer. That's the only thing that matters. Memorize the formulas and rote memorization is probably one of the most harmful things that exist today when it comes to the learning of math. Um, I didn't notice this until I reached my mid twenties. When I saw people getting really mad about common core, there are a whole bunch of like math, like videos that show like train tracks and boxes. And it's like, this is how you do division. And everybody got really fucking mad about it. And when I watched those videos, I was like, Oh fuck. I thought everybody did math in their head like this. And it became very obvious that like a lot of people are really bad at math. Um, and it's just because they don't think about it much in their head in certain ways. And you're never really taught to you just like given rote memorization. So I do, agree with you that like obviously it's good to get the answer at the end of the day um, when you're working in your job but in an academic environment that's kind of like where you're more free to like explore and grow and like how do you learn the processes by way by how we get to the right answers in terms of like objectively correct i just so history we always learn about history um, we never actually learn history though. What, what, like what we're learning in whenever we read a book or whenever we take a classroom is we're engaging in something called historiography, um, where what we've actually done is you don't learn every single event about anything. We don't learn every body. We don't learn every territory. We don't learn, what we learn is we learn a collection of facts that we've kind of taken in order to tell a narrative. And you can even see a divide in the country over some things that some people would consider like not ambiguous. So for instance, when we tell the story of the civil war, the North were the good guys and the South were the bad guys. Traditionally, that's how it's taught most of the time, at least. 
But there are a lot of people, well, some people in the United States that would disagree with that telling of the story, right? And then other people say that when we tell the story of like US history, we typically tell it from the uh, perspective of like, well, who were the who were Americans, right? It was like the Puritans, those four groups that came over initially, the people that, um, you know, fought wars and blah, blah, blah. But other people are like, you know, we have the 1619 Project from the initiative from the New York Times, like, well, let's actually tell this story from a different perspective. Now, some people argue that like things like the 1619 Project are wrong, or that's fake, or it's not, that's not objective history or whatever, but it is, it's just history from another point of view. Um, so I guess I would have to like see, I would be very surprised, I could be wrong, but yeah, I'm digging through like this, I would be very surprised if a proponent of critical race theory was like, oh no, I don't believe in any objective facts. And I like, I reject all mathematical axioms. I reject all epistemic axioms. It's probably more along the lines of like, we need to be really careful when we say objectively correct, because what we really mean when we say objectively correct is this is the prevailing culture of the time. And if you disagree with any of the narratives that exist, you are actually wrong and stupid. A really good example that keeps coming up is African-American vernacular English. Like we want to say it's dumb and we want to call it Ebonics and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But almost nobody in the United States, even in corporate environments, will speak like actual proper written standard English. I think it's standard, it's standard American English might be what it's called. Like there are tons of forms of slang that are employed in a lot of different ways. And when we talk about African-American vernacular English, I don't think we're necessarily saying like it needs to be spoken in a corporate boardroom, just more so that if you're in a corporate environment and someone comes in and they're like, howdy y'all today we're going to talk about maybe not howdy but like hey y'all there's like a lot of slang from other parts of the country where if you speak it people are like okay yeah it's just like whatever um but if you speak ebonics or african-american vernacular english people automatically think this guy's a fucking idiot what a moron speaking speaking ebonics this guy's not educated when in reality like i mean it exists as a separate like legitimate dialect just like any other dialect is formed but for some reason when we look at this particular dialect we instantly think uneducated stupid immature like idiot low vocabulary all right, sorry, I'm speaking a lot, go for it. I mean, like like I said, you went over a bunch of different things and a lot of it's not related. Like, I don't disagree that history is like the highlights from whatever historian or what we can glean from looking back on the past. Uh, the 1619 Project is objectively wrong. The first black people who arrived in 1619 didn't come as slaves. So that's objectively incorrect. Free black people made it to the Americas before slaves. So, I mean, that that is what it is, but... As for as for your point on on uh, ebonics, and I call it ebonics because I literally forget every time you go into the African American vernacular English if that was it, um, because that's what it used to be called. It's not about it sounding stupid or or making you sound uneducated. Like I didn't grow up in a neighborhood where everybody spoke all prim and proper, but it's important that the school teaches you to read the version of English where most of scholarship is actually written in because it greatly disadvantages you not to know this. This is what we did with white Southerners who spoke ridiculous, broken English, a lot of which is what led Black people to speak in Ebonics, because it traces back to the South, and that broken English actually traces back to Southerners' origin countries, which is the borderlands between uh, the UK, I'm sorry, uh, England and Scotland on the island of Britain. So, like, this idea that we would say, oh, it's just as valid. Yeah, sure, you can communicate information, but it greatly disadvantages you not being able or or not being able to understand certain words and being able to have access to the wealth of knowledge that is written in the appropriate English language. We've seen other groups have to go, uh, go through this um, over time. Like the Germans had written language well before um, their Eastern European counterparts. So a lot of Eastern Europeans, in order to find scholarship, had to learn German in order to learn whatever trades they want. And it gave the Germans or Germanic people 
a great advantage over their Eastern European counterparts. And it led to social problems between them and all that. So I'm saying the schools should, it's like, to me, it's not even a debate. The school should teach appropriate English. It greatly disadvantages black students for the schools to try to cater to them out of some misguided white guilt or critical race theory that tells us that it's just as valid. Uh, I think I lost whatever. The, yeah, oh yeah, well, as, for, as for your point about um, mm -hmm. mathematical terms, in the Oregon textbook, it actually says that teaching kids about the Pythagorean theorem is damaging because it gives them the impression that math was created by uh, white people because I think the Pythagorean theorem is Greek. So that was like a specific example from a textbook, a proposed textbook that I saw today in the yeah. lead up to this. So like, Sir. Yeah, no, they do want to invade um, the hard sciences and the Pythagorean theorem is incredibly helpful. There's a reason we use it. There's a reason we use um, algebra and all these other terms that were that come from the Islamic golden age because it objectively works and it's repeatable around the world. Yeah, so I think that we would all agree on this and I think we would have to find, I, I couldn't find examples of this. So for, for just very quickly on these two things. So uh, maybe this is a disconnect. I don't think anybody advocating for critical race theory is saying that we should no longer teach proper English. I think it's just to be a bit more respectful to um, what we've now deemed AAVE. I think that's the idea. It's not that like we're gonna teach kids Ebonics in school. We're gonna literally teach them how to write English like rappers or whatever. I don't think that's the case. I think it's just more to have, a, to, to treat it as a legitimate dialect rather than just like a horrible thing that shouldn't even be regarded as a dialect is the first thing. And then the second thing in regards to, no, no one has said we shouldn't teach the Pythagorean theorem. I think it was more just when you can find, not I think, I shouldn't say this because we read this earlier. It was more when you have the opportunity to find and highlight the successes of like minority mathematicians, um, stuff like that would be good to do. A lot of theorems are named after people. A lot of these people are white. Um, to have people in the classroom identify more with the stuff they're learning, sometimes it might be nice if you can point out examples of like, here is a woman that worked at NASA doing computations for, you know, the Apollo um, missions. Here's a black mathematician that, you know, discovered this thing or another thing. Um, I think the curriculum just wanted you to highlight if you could, like, or, or, or encourage teachers to highlight when they could, like, these are the successes of minority mathematicians, uh, not to just stop teaching certain math or stop teaching English. And I don't think we disagree that either of those things are necessarily a bad thing. Or I, would hope I mean, you, you say, like, you say things like no one, um, no one is proposing this, nobody is saying this, but again, like, this comes from the scholars. Patricia Williams compared teaching a proper English to Jim Crow, like, because you're I mean, imposing these standards on white, on, on non-white people. Like, you have to read the scholarship before you assert that, like, nobody is suggesting this. Uh, Gary Peller says that not only proper English, but a bunch of other things that were instituted on the South in Black schools are forms of white oppression, like the removal of corporal punishment, the expansion beyond single, um, single house, where you get rid of the maternal relationship between the teacher and the student. Like, these people are against integration, and that's not just racial integration. It's like the standardization of education. They consider forms of Jim Crow or white supremacy. Like this is again from the scholars in the field. Like yeah, I will, there, I will I, I'm sure that there. Yeah, there are you can definitely look up any one of these scholars and their writings. Well, I mean, we can look up the scholars, but I think to what Riley said earlier about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Like there are going to be some scholars that have bad takes on things, but I mean, like this is a very active field of academia. Like we can hop on Google Scholar right now and there are people that are furiously writing papers responding to other people that are furiously writing papers that are asserting their own theses and ideas. It just, it feels to me like a very authoritarian move to be like, no, we are federally banning all critical race theory. Like, wouldn't it make more sense to- I didn't say to... federally. Oh, okay. Well, and, 
oh, so if we don't agree with banning it, then we should probably just let school boards like decide other parts of it that they want to implement in the curriculum, other parts that they don't want to. Because I think that there are things of value here that we can all agree that like, yeah, it might be good to teach this from this perspective or that from this perspective. Because I, I think normally when people call for banning it, they're talking about like this federal or every state banning um, critical race theory. It's education is handled on the local level. Like there's been almost no talk. Joe Biden's president right now about banning on the federal level. And even if the federal government were to ban it in public education, what they would be doing is not subsidizing it, which only accounts for like 10% of education spending in the country. So like the federal government could not ban this. Local school boards and states have control over their curriculum. And I'm glad you mentioned authoritarianism because Delgado is one of the founders of critical race theory. And he's very much against freedom of speech. He thinks it's damaging. And the idea that if you let all these ideas out into the world, that it will eventually lead to good results or better results or a widespread debate is completely false. And he believes in punishments for hate speech, which is authoritarian. Um, so Sean, and again, then- like, I, you could call him like a random guy. I mean, he's one of the two guys that founded the discipline, but uh, you know, it might be like one random scholar. So Sean, gotcha. I mean, like, we're just one last thing, and then you can take, take off. My understanding was that like we were trying to federally ban that at one point. That that's why I thought Trump started that 1776 commission in response no, to the tr- Trump um, was not thing. Trump was not going to pay for it to be taught to the military and other government um, and and other government employees. That had nothing to do with the education system. That had to do with training based on critical race theory being. Done. So one of the so one of the goals was literally to increase patriotic education via yeah, like a nationalist a thing. The 1776 project in response to the 1619 project is a different thing from. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like that 1776 commission was literally trying to make like a centralized nationalistic curriculum that was kind of in response to like Trump's attacks on critical race theory. Well, in response to the 1619 project, for sure. Sure. Okay. Um, just to pick up, so Sean, then maybe this is, all right, I'm going to like try to bridge the gap here because I mean, like if you're not arguing that we should ban it federally, then let me ask, so would you be fine, like leaving it to essentially local school boards to be able to vote on just whatever parts of critical race theory they find to be most beneficial to students to be able to teach and allow them to be able to implement it on a local basis? Like, you know, if if we're saying that there's some parts of it that are harmful, then leave it to local school boards to determine, all right, so what are the harmful parts? What are the parts that are actually beneficial? And be able to, like, sit it out on their own. I mean, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want this implemented anywhere, but like a federal, again, a federal ban is like something that's not existent. We have a federalist government, like the federal government can't just ban something in the school. Well, but I, yeah, if you, if you gave, if you, if you had parents with like school choice and they could opt their kids out of it, like. You know, you could have it as an elective. Like California has had a bunch of these like programs as electives in their state. I still think they're damaging, but at least like you you opt into that. Like I don't I don't want this mandated. Like, um, then maybe the other question. All right, so I mean, like, if it's not. Because, I mean, like, a lot of the questions or a lot of the issues that you're bringing up, I mean, like, I would trust that school boards could be able to sift through and determine, like, all right, so, like, the parts where, like, the the authoritarian the, the authoritarian aspect that you brought up before, right? I would assume that school boards could be able to reasonably parse out, like, okay, that's something that we shouldn't be allowed to, that we should not teach our kids, right? Um, but, like, you know, do you think that there's any aspect of critical race theory that could be reasonably salvaged if school boards are left to their own devices that could be taught to kids in a safe way? Uh, I mean, the whole program is anti-intellectual, so I wouldn't teach it. Like, if you're going to say, hey, here's one thing that one critical race theory scholar wrote 
that might sound reasonable, like that doesn't mean that the discipline should still be taught or like that specific portion of the discipline. I'm in favor of civil rights education in our public schools. I'm in favor of teaching negative history about the United States of America in our public schools. But critical race theory is not, I have no interest in it. I read over the scholars and like what their thoughts are in American society and how they come to justify their their statements and policies, prescriptions, and no, it's like inherently a political ideology, and this isn't denied by any of the scholars. Like it's inherently an activist ideology. Like so, then, oh, go ahead. Or, I, 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 you keep using the word like anti-intellectual. I don't know what you mean by that. They don't subject themselves to scrutiny from other academic disciplines. Like, like, what do you mean when you say that? So. If you're an if you're a discipline in a university, right? There's like okay. review boards and all this stuff to kind of like you know it's like the peer reviewed system, right? Like they reject those things and are very insular, so they don't because they say that the objective standards of the modern educational institution, I believe this comes directly from David Bell. So are, critical race theorists don't. Biased. There's no peer review. They don't publish in I didn't journals. Say that there's, I didn't say that there, I didn't say that there's no peer review, but I said that they reject criticism from outside they even label criticism from non-whites on the outside as people like basically uh catering to the white white academic structure i mean you could look up critical race theories views or theorist views on academia like it's this isn't it doesn't peer review typically like for the majority of peer review doesn't that typically come from within your own discipline like don't psychologists get super ass mad when like a neurobiologist or neuroscientist try to publish stuff related to like what they feel in psychology or don't economists fight with other disciplines because sometimes people that study sociology like criminal justice get ass mad because a lot of economists will take like models and try to like model crime and stuff like that doesn't seem to be unique to critical race theory uh, in terms still, of like, yeah. they still subject themselves to it, like, like yeah, they can well, but they fight, fight like pretty vicious. I mean, like, but, so, but that's like good. that's what I that's what I would prefer. Yeah, but necessarily, so do critical race theorists as well. They they must be. I mean, other people are publishing journals. They're publishing in journals. Like every field is going to subject itself. I, I just we, we're you're saying this like it's very special or peculiar that like critical it race is, theorists. It's, it's how it's designed. It is very peculiar. Like this was. I, I'm sure there's other disciplines that are like in the activist studies like like realm like this is that have followed suit, but yeah, it is. And they often label criticism against them racist and attacks on their person because they're telling personal stories about how they felt. Do you think that- It's really hard to review a personal story of how you felt in any kind of objective academic sense. Yeah, but so like everybody in academia will fight when outside disciplines try to critique their ideas. That's not unique to critical race theory or, or any field, even physicists and, um, and, and other disciplines will fight over like like mathematicians and physicists will sometimes fight over things. Um, the the I, I think the idea that there's like a hostility towards external review of your particular discipline, I, I don't think that's unique at all to critical race theory. Um, in, in terms of like they get mad because people are critiquing their stories. Uh, I mean, like, are you asserting that like the well, majority my, of critical my, race theory papers point, are just stories? Like that's point, all it is? Or? My point is, how can you critique like stories? Like it's storytelling is a big component of it. It describes itself as a holistic discipline. Like, but is, so, is, so if I were to go and look up like the majority of like published critical race theory papers, is are all of them or the majority of them going to be like I yesterday mean, I went to the store and there was a doll and she upset me because it was more the, expensive. Is the than... overwhelming majority like is that even a noble question? Like I would I would hope not, but I wouldn't be surprised if the answer was yes. I mean, Regina, I'm sorry, not Regina, uh, Patricia Wilson's book, like The Rooster's Egg is a bunch of stories. 
like stories about how her going to adopt uh, a black kid and then her deciding that this also proves that black people are undervalued in our society that the fee for older black kids in this adoption center was half of the fee for younger white kids which like i mean it could be indicative of racism but i'm sure like if anybody has ever looked into adoption ever you know that adopting older kids or adoption becomes more difficult the older the kids are so obviously it would be more uh, they would try everything to get you to take those kids but yeah like it's it's storytelling for them you think not, that you not might all be, but you, you think know. that you might be being like a little uncharitable i mean like right now like you cited one what? example and you like, were and when you were asked about well is this happening in the majority of cases you're like well i hope not and i mean like Right now, I mean, like, if it is happening widespread, then yeah, that is a problem that, you know, the large academic field is based primarily on storytelling. But like, right now, I mean, like, sure, we can criticize one person, and that there's room to be able to do that. But it doesn't seem justifiable to be able to take like, oh, well, one person did it. So like, it's possible that a lot of people could be doing that. Like, that doesn't seem to be substantiated. Well, again, these are like common criticism of discipline that it's based on storytelling and like, again, it's not something that's denied by critical race theorists. Like, I like I don't know, like, maybe you should read some, like, foundational literature on it. And for me, like, for, for you to call or say I'm being a little bit disingenuous, like, I can cite multiple different authors and, like, absurd things that they said. But, like, I think there's nothing more disingenuous than saying, well, do you think the overwhelming majority of all papers written on this topic ever uh, fall into this category like how would I possibly know that I mean I've been spent my entire life studying this well I mean the reason that I'm asking that question is because when we're at like when you bring up like individual people as examples for your argument to substantiate it I mean that falls into the same kind of issue as like citing to personal stories where you're only relying on like one example to try to prove a larger phenomenon right like I you know I was reading like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy earlier to read about critical theory right and like you get like a pretty robust definition of like what critical theory is that isn't just reliant on like oh well this one person did something and that's you know and this is descriptive of like the entire field right like, sure, like citing one person can be good if we're able to demonstrate it's like a, a representative of a larger phenomenon, but like you need a separate kind of example. Otherwise, like it is like and like individual anecdotal evidence, right? Like it's the same issue that like you're bringing up to criticize or like the, to make the criticism that you're alleging. Does that make sense? Sure, but like I'm not citing random people that wrote some things about critical race theory. Like when I say Delgado, I mean, Delgado as in Delgado and Bell the foundational writers from it like like I you think I that I don't, I don't know like like when I say Patricia Williams she's a well-known scholar in critical race theory she's often referenced in the papers of others like I think that I think that's something that would be more relevant or interesting I guess is because is rather than like this is like the foundational like writings on a particular topic it, it would be more interesting to see like problematic implementations because at the end of the day implementation is what we're talking about like if we would have applied um, you know, if you go back a few decades we would have applied the same thought to psychology you know when it was a burgeoning field under um, Floyd not Floyd um, Freud. Um, when it was like first taking off, like all of these same criticisms could have been levied at psychology. And it's like, well, should we do any further stuttering, studying? Should we do any more paper publishing? Like, this is like a waste of time. Like this guy is literally telling stories with no scientific backing. Um, and the foundational expert in the field, the, fa- the first guy to take psychology seriously, um, Sigmund Freud is like, just not doing a good job. Like, I- I'm sure that there are 
problematic views that are asserted by some early foundational critical race theorists. Um, and there are probably like a wide number of topics that we disagree on. But in terms of like the actual implementation, like what, you know, boils down to the curriculum or what is being taught to like educators or whatever, I, I don't, I haven't seen, and this is why I said at the very beginning that maybe we should focus on some of these individual topics. Like I don't see there, see there being a huge problem of like analyzing like, well, what do we mean when we say like objective truth or when we analyze some particular standards by which we hold ourselves or, uh, you know, like why do we treat certain dialects different than others? Like, I don't think these are necessarily bad, um, like things to be learning about in a classroom setting. I do want to give you the last word, Sean, just because it is true that it's there's uh, one person of your position, you could say tonight. And so before we do, we'll give you a, a pithy last word. We do want to then transition into the next topic, namely what is and what isn't transphobia, where is the line drawn? So we'll give you a chance to give that uh, last response, Sean. Yeah. So overall, like if you look at the foundational writers and you can read like papers, more common and well-known people are people like Ibram X. Kendi, who believes that no policies are neutral. Every policy either falls into the category of racist or anti-racist and we have to promote anti-racism in order to reach equity which is policies that actively try to reverse discrimination by creating positive discrimination again his words not mine is that you like is that you find this in the scholarship there's an over-reliance on um i lost my train of thought totally right there and i'm about to bail out of the sentence but um yeah, so what you find and what I've, what I've gathered from my two opponents on this issue is what I believe to be a lack of understanding on the issues that we're talking about. So like if I go to the foundations of the discipline and I talk about like what the original writers wrote about it and what scholarship through the years has, has uh, promoted, I think that this is more substantial than the individual examples of schools because I'm certain had I brought up like implementation in Michigan or implementation in North Carolina, of these programs and people's objections of it or the Oregon implementation, then those would have been also classified as anecdotes. So like maybe I'm wrong, maybe I misunderstood the parameters of the debate, but like when we talk about incorporating critical race theory in the curriculum, I think it's important to examine the foundations of critical race theory. Like who came up with this, not just what one school board is doing here versus another school board over there. So that's that's really it. You well, got it. quickly, uh, quickly, James, uh, I actually had three questions from Chad. Can I throw them at them or should we move on to the next topic? If it's possible to wait toward the end, because I, I okay. was thinking we do that, do that clump Q&A in the end. But do want to mention, oh. folks, if you are new here, want to let you know in particular to my right over here, my left, your left. Dylan is our co-host and co-moderator tonight. We are thrilled to be collaborating with Dylan, who is linked in the description below, as well as our guests. So if you have not checked out our guest links, we encourage you, you certainly can right now, as we really do appreciate them, as well as Dylan for co-hosting and moderating with us tonight. We're going to jump into the next topic. In particular, where is the line drawn on transphobia? In particular, for example, would it be transphobic if someone happened to say that they were not for children trans children being allowed to use puberty blockers. That's one particular example we could examine, but does anybody have any opening thoughts for this topic? Um, sure. I mean, I can go ahead. Um, I'd give him some thought about this. Um, not the trans youth aspect, but just like transphobia in general. Um, so if you don't mind, I can go ahead and with that. Yeah, you bet. All right. Um, so basically, uh, transphobia, I mean, like I'll acknowledge it. Like it's a term that's thrown around a lot. 
And so I want to be very conscientious that like, you know, we want to be like precise with what we're meaning when we're citing something as transphobia or else it becomes one of those terms that kind of loses meaning, right? Um, so like the simple definition I would have is like transphobia is where one person causes another person harm by virtue of the fact that the person who is harmed is transgender, right? Um, that's like the simple definition. But the problem with that is that like harm is a very nebulous term. Um, so I usually think in terms of like two kinds of harm, right? Um, intentional harm, where someone tries to harm someone else by virtue of the fact that they're transgender, or negligent harm, where someone directly causes, meaning that but for their action, the other the outcome would not have occurred, and proximately causes, where an average reasonable person would foresee the action as harmful or transphobic, um, where they cause someone to experience a harm by virtue of the fact that they're transgender. Um, a good example to just demonstrate this is like if I were walking down the street with my yaya, um, and someone, we pass someone and they see me and they see that I'm trans and they intentionally try to transgender me because they just really hate trans people. That would be like intentionally harm, right? Like they're trying to cause me harm uh, by virtue of the fact I'm trans. And then a little bit later, Mayaya, who loves me and who I'm like best friends with, she accidentally misgenders me. There's still a harm there, but she didn't intentionally cause that. She was just negligent in that action, you know? She caused it directly and she well should have known that that was the outcome, right? Um, that's usually how I would parse it out. We can get like into more particulars, but that's how I parse it personally. You got it. Thanks very much. Anybody else in terms of opening thoughts? You got it. Take now. this one, Destiny. What? It's like throw your opening thoughts out there. Define it. Um, I mean, I, I think I largely agree. I feel like this entire conversation is just going to be about kids taking puberty blockers, but <laughs> we'll see where we go. I, I agree with everything Rose said. Okay, so, I mean, I didn't know you just agreed. You should have said that, so I wouldn't ask you to take it. Um, right, no. So, yeah, transphobia, I mean, a phobia is supposed to be an irrational fear, but obviously we use, like, transphobia in the same way that we use racism as, like, you know, so, like, even though I don't think it makes sense or, or whatever, whatever, but, um, yeah, transphobia is, I guess, like, a hatred or or an anger or, or some some kind of prejudice against trans people as commonly defined. I don't think that certain concerns are transphobic. I'm sure that's where we'll, we'll disagree. Uh, even if they do cause hurt feelings by certain people. Um, yeah. So that's it. Not really. You got it. Long. Do want to ask. So for example, one topic we have coming up on a debate this coming Monday in particular, is it transphobic if a person were to not define trans women as fitting under the umbrella of women. Are you that, asking are you advocating? Yeah. Advertising? Are you advertising or are you asking us that? Asking you guys that. Uh, I would say so. I, I would say that falls under like negligence. Even if you don't intend to cause harm, that like you're still uh, directly causing, in this case, like a spread of misinformation. I'll qualify that as misinformation. I'll just say that's factually incorrect. Um, and you're doing something which would lead any reasonable person to know. Um, or would lead like most reasonable people, especially like within the trans community to recognize it like, yeah, that, that would cause harm to trans people. Um, so I would say that like, even if you don't intend it, that it would cause at least negligent harm. I feel like for this, like I'm probably gonna have a middle of the road here. I, I feel like you can literally just say cis woman or trans woman, or you can use biological woman if you wanna have like a medical conversation and you would literally cover all of your bases here and literally everybody's happy and you haven't lost the utility out of any word whatsoever. Um, the people that like hyper obsess over gatekeeping, like the category of woman or man, like 
always does it under some weird guise of like biology or something when like you can super easily have these conversations by just using terms like um like their sex is female or their sex is male or i'm um, using cisgender versus like transgender like it's i feel like that solves for everything so i feel like when people argue against it i, I don't know where the inspiration comes from gotcha Thoughts yeah on? i mean uh like it, it just depends on how you're defining wom woman. If you're defining woman as adult human female, as in biological sex, then I guess no, like that would be like accurate. If you're, if you're saying like women as like currently vaguely defined in our society, then maybe, I don't know. Like, I guess it could be like, I don't know if it's transphobic, but like, you know, I, I can see how it could be upsetting if you feel like you're not included when you feel like you should be included. I mean, when we say adult, so like that's the argument that's usually brought up by like, so a lot of TERFs will bring up that argument and usually it comes from like the dictionary, but even the dictionary, I mean, like if we want to just like use that as a starting point, um, even the Ox, I believe it's the Oxford Dictionary actually now includes like, um, like a social, like a recognition of like the social category of one, right? Like it finds it uh, meaningfully useful in the same way that most academic organizations which study this find it useful to like delineate between like um, gender, which is largely societally constructed, and then biological sex. Um, like, even the dictionary nowadays, like, finds that distinction useful. Gotcha. So, there's kind of a comfortable sitting together here. How about, as an example, Joe Rogan's position, you already know what it is, in particular on whether or not trans women should be able to participate in women's sports would this be transphobic or is this reasonable disagreement? Um, uh, does he have I, like a blanket ban or like what, what's his like full position? That's a good question. Cause I don't know if it's for every sport, like a universal sport kind of rule. I know that it's for UFC in particular. He has specifically advocated though, that trans women should not be able to compete with women's uh, you could say women competitors. Um, I mean, like just, uh, so like, this is probably one of the more complicated topics as far as like trans issues, because like, um, most of the literature seems to suggest that like one of the main defining category, one of the main defining features for why you have like men's and women's sports is the effects of testosterone, like as broad kind of over there, there's a lot more there, but that's like the broad defining distinction, right. And like the effects of testosterone. Um, so like just to shortcut some of like my answers that like, I would probably say that like, if you have been through like a um, testosterone based puberty and you've already experienced the effects of that, then I would probably say like, go on um, hormone replacement therapy for a couple of years, um, which has shown to like decrease a lot of that, um, like the ad advantage quote unquote, that would be conferred from testosterone um, to the point where, you know, different um, athletics organizations have drawn like different lines for where to draw this. Um, I believe that most organizations usually have it like two to three years, um, draw like that kind of line. And then, you know, you'll probably be fine. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's transphobic at all. Joe Rogan, like it's all about what the purpose of these sports are. Men's sports are supposed to be the most competitive, uh, possible. It's like, you know, dangerous uh, or more dangerous typically than female sports and female sports are made for like the safety of women there's virtually there's for most major league there's no rules preventing women from competing in male sports it's just about like having like that level of competition for you to be able to get in there because there's that much of a distinct difference especially when you're talking about people who are already athletes in the other sport 
Like these are people at peak physical condition for whatever game we seem to be talking about. Obviously there's some exclusions like less athletic sports. We get that. But like, uh, I believe that Serena Williams, the greatest female tennis player of all time. Like if you were to rank her serve speed, it ranks somewhere where uh, in a men's college server. So there is a distinct advantage. Um, so I've been pretty clear. I think men's sports should be open to everybody because it already is. Uh, female sports are designed for biological females. I have no problem with female to male transition uh, transitioners going into men's sports if they can compete. I have no problem with women, regardless of uh, biological women, regardless of they transition going into male sports as long as they compete. If we have to reach a point in time where we have to make a separate league for transgender people, then like you know that remains to be determined at some point in the future. But female sports are for biological females. It's for the safety of them. And a lot of it in the United States of America is done to like equality balance male sports and universities for scholarships, et cetera, et cetera. And it is an unfair advantage in a lot of these cases. Except I wouldn't say that it's like primarily for the um, for the like the protection of women. Right. Um, like we could look at certain sports like sure, like with MMA or like um, like similar like contact sports, we could make that argument. But it seems to be a broad like across the case, primarily because of like the advantages conferred from testosterone. Um, I mean, like that comes from a lot of people who draw these policies within, you know, like the Olympics committee, like they recognize that, like, you know, like this is the primary reason why um, they make these distinctions. So they want to be able to like recognize that so they can be able to make space for like trans women to be able to compete if, you know, they meet certain criteria. But like as far as the harm argument, I mean, like, you know, we could look at like, uh, you know, if you have track where no person is touching each other, they're just all running in a straight line or competing in their own individual events against each other. Like there's no possible harm that could be caused to each other. Um, and I mean, like, as far as the idea that like, oh, well, scholar, maybe the harm is like, uh, that someone might lose a financial scholarship. Um, I mean, like there's other things to be said about that argument. Um, I would probably levy that more as a criticism of like our lack of access to education, but as far as like physical harm, um, there's no, like, it doesn't seem like there that that's a reasonable justification to say like, oh, that's the reason that this distinction exists at this, um, in this, in these types of arenas. Well, that's one reason I said physical harm because Joe Rogan's position from my understanding, it's probably more broad in terms of sports, but he was specifically talking about MMA and a specific fighter in MMA. So, but I, you know, so I'm talking, that, that was in, in the reference to, uh, like physical contact sports. Like obviously track, it's just the advantage of like male over female in running. That would right, be but issue. then why like, is like why would it be more protective? Like in MMA, well, like why would it be more protective? Because my answer, like why it would like protect women in that instance, is because of advantages conferred from testosterone. So like if you had, uh, for example, like a pre, uh, like a trans woman who as a youth taking this back to like the trans youth argument, because this is why I think it's, this is one reason I think it's very important to be able to make um, healthcare access or gender affirming care very accessible to trans youth. You know, you take a trans woman who realizes that she's trans from a young age um, and you're able to put her on puberty blockers so she doesn't experience the effects of testosterone, like the advanced, like possible advantages like disappear, right? Um, and so there would be like no possibility of harm from that trans woman if she wanted to, to be able to go on um, and having never been ex uh, conferred that unfair advantage from testosterone to be able to go off and compete in MMA, like there should be no issue there, um, at least based on the body of literature. I mean, like I said, I, I don't think it's just down to testosterone. There are advantages to going through a biological male puberty, especially in a lot of the sports that we're talking about. 
like I'm not a doctor. I mean, if you want to say like the Olympic committee, I think they say one year on testosterone suppressants. Therefore, uh, that makes it totally fair. I don't believe that when I see like a transgender person set records in weightlifting for women's sport or for women's weightlifting. I think that like we all understand what's happening and it's a bit ridiculous, but professional sports, honestly, and the Olympics, like they can make up whatever categories they want. Like in terms of in our universities, like the entire purpose of women's sports in many cases, and men's teams actually get shut down because they don't have enough female athletes to counterbalance like the football team is for women to have sports, to have scholarships and for them to have it in a way that is competitive for them. And when I say women, I mean biological females in that instance, I'll try to delineate between women and females because they're like just different definitions obviously through this conversation and I don't want to get bogged down in that, but like the purpose of female sports is to have like female sports. Um, I mean, like, all right, I wouldn't say that's not like the purpose, but going back to like the weightlifting argument, um, like I know that a lot of people will pick up like the individual instances where you have a trans woman who does very well, but trans women have been competing in like a professional sports for a good while now. Um, and the vast majority of the time when they compete, I mean, they can do like, all right, but they aren't out, usually out there like setting these massive records, right? Like most of them have like decent careers, but don't actually like, you know, it's not as if like every single trans woman who goes out and competes in professional sports ends up like dominating the field, right? Um, and it's only whenever like someone happens to be able to do that, that there ends up being like all these people coming out, like saying, oh, we'll see, this is the possible, this is what's going to be the case for every single trans woman who competes when it's not even the majority of the time. Um, so it seems like, when we're citing like, oh, you know, when, when we see this happen, you know, in, in professional sports, it's implying that this happens a lot more often than it actually does. I mean, I don't know how often that happens. A lot of the sports that we're talking about, I don't even watch. Like, I'm just saying what the purpose of the of these sports are, what they're designed for. Like, again, if you were to set aside like a separate league, then I think that's fine. Again, I have no problem with female to male trans competing in male sports. I just think that women's sports is specifically for biological women for the number of advantages going through a male puberty and like the, you know, just the nature of our dimorphic species actually like infers on them for people uh, in terms of sports. Like, you know, again, I'm not an expert biologist. I don't watch like sprinting or any of this stuff. Um, like, I don't care about the Olympics, honestly. All Put right. the torch out. Well, I mean, like, um, if the literature does show, and I mean, it seems like the literature broadly shows this to be true. Like, if we're able to show that, like, A, people who don't show, uh, don't go through, like, a male puberty actually experience, like, or are conferred any of these disproportionate advantages, like what you're talking about as your main concern, um, or that after trans women go on to hormone replacement therapy for a long enough period, then the majority of those conferred benefits, whatever they are, uh, largely go away in terms of how they affect performance. Like if those two things are true, then the argument that like, oh, well, they're going to have a disproportionate advantage seems to be reasonably settled. Um, and also like going back, because I mean, like, um, and I mean, like, we can have another argument about like, what is the purpose of sports? Because I don't think it's settled that like, oh, the purpose of these categories is just for biological females and just for biological males, right? Like, it seems like we probably largely draw up these sporting categories just to have them be as fair as possible, like to have as like, you know, in our imperfect society, be able to draw up like the most, like the, the fairest forums um, that we can have, you know, so that we can get as close to a competition where, or competitions where the only defining factor that determines who wins and loses is how much training and time people put in. 
you know, like as close to like pure egalitarianism as or not egalitarianism. Um, meritocracy. There, yeah, as close to like a pure meritocracy as possible. So like if the evidence shows that under certain situations, given the right kinds of steps taken by trans women that were able to like, you know, um, reasonably assuade concerns that that would not be the case, then I don't see any reason why not to allow them. I mean, like as far as sports being about like having a level playing field or that training is a determining factor. I mean, that's not the case. I mean, natural talent plays a huge role. Like, yeah, I, can, I mean, I like train, sports are, I could train twice as hard as LeBron James. He's still six, eight, 280 pounds and runs like the wind and can fly basically compared to me. Like it's not going to happen. So like we, like there's, there's like natural advantage. There's uh there's training and all that stuff that goes into it. But like, like we broadly use the categories of sex, even though again, there's typically not a prohibition for biological women to go into male sports. Um, for for the men, we're trying to have the most like competitive competition, which is why there's not really a barrier preventing women from entering men's sports. And for women, it's usually on the university level for scholarships and for them to have like more of a level, more fair playing field. I think fairness plays more into the female sports than the male sports, if I'm being honest. Because I mean, right, then, look at the disparities between college, you know, like teams. But if you're and, able to go back, like if we're able to, like if we're able to demonstrably show that if trans women either don't go through testosterone-based puberty or they go on like several years of HRT, that it is a fair fight or it is a fair uh, competition, then going off that logic, it doesn't make any sense to still keep them out even when it would otherwise be fair for them, right? Like I know trans women who are weaker probably more so than like most cis women. It doesn't make sense to keep them out of women's sports if there's no possibility of a conferred advantage. I mean, ultimately, like, yeah, you can, you can, what you call, if you like prove that beyond whatever standard, most uh, sporting organizations say that it's already been proven beyond any standard, then, you know, whatever. Like, I agree with Joe Rogan that I do think there is an advantage, but like, you know, I'm not in charge of these things. So like, you know, that's how you end up with Fallon Fox fighting people in the UFC. Like, so I I don't know. And as for people not going through male puberty, so like that's like a earlier in transition. Honestly, I don't even know about that. So like maybe like maybe that does significantly deteriorate any kind of natural advantage. Like I, I wouldn't know. Like I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be. I mean, like if you want, I mean, like I've read a lot of the literature on that. I mean, I can send you that later, but that does seem to at least based on the literature that exists currently. And like there can be more literature on it, but that seems to be at least what seems to be the case from what evidence exists currently. Um, like that for I, people I will, I will, who I do I do want to draw one like delineation because a lot of the like cases that people reference of like this trans person setting this record or whatever is typically somebody who was already an athlete pre-transition. Because yeah, there are some men that are weaker than some women, et cetera, et cetera. Like I understand all those like logical exercises and all that, but like when you incorporate like training and specifically for like, you know, to be an athlete, like that widens the disparities. Like we, so yeah, like a lot of the people who set records were like low level weightlifters or low level runners in the male division pre-transition and then they transitioned and they blew away their competition. So I think that's like a little bit more like indicative than like this random trans person who didn't have an athletic bone in their body pre-transition is slower than this like top female sprinter um like after her transition like to me that's not like yeah you know, except not really in, anything that's 
that is. Like going back to, I mean, like there there could be some argument there. Um, I think that there's some literature out there that like if you do a ton of training pre-transition and then you go through transition even after a couple of years that you could still have some conferred advantage. But um, so like there there is some evidence, I believe, to make that claim. Um, but again, like we've seen that a lot of people who have been career athletes who then go on to transition after already beginning their athletic career don't actually go on to like dominate the field, right? Um, so even if that is the case for some people, it doesn't seem to be the case for the majority of people like who you are describing. Since we, I mean, we if haven't you heard say from... so, like I don't watch uh, like the sports that we're talking about. Like I'm a baseball guy and I'm missing DeGrom dominate right now. So Since we haven't heard this. from Steven for a while, Steven, any thoughts on this? Otherwise, shortly, we're going to jump into the final topic for the night before we go into Q&A. Um, I mean, I, 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 it feels like there's pretty big agreement on both sides here. Um, Riley is kind of trying to get um, actual just a word to say that, like, assuming there's no massively conferred advantage, that it should be okay for trans people to compete. I think everybody would agree with that. Usually the debate is over whether there is a conferred advantage. Yeah. Um, it. Um, I, I think Riley agrees. It seems to be the case that if you do go through puberty as a certain sex, there's going to be like undeniable and I don't know if you say irreparable changes to your body, but like you go through like dramatic physiological changes that are more than just an increase of production and testosterone or something. So past that, it seems to be pretty difficult. Um, I mean, like we, they, we go back and forth a little bit on like, what I, I don't, I don't agree that the purpose of classes or whatever are to keep people safe. Um, I totally disagree with that. I think that classes are created because people want um, sports to be fair. The idea is supposed to be that it's merit-based that whoever works the hardest can, um, can, can win. But I mean, as actual justice warrior pointed out, I mean, if that were the case, we would have height classes in the NBA we don't. So, I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think I have much to add on this topic. Also, it's just Sean. You don't have to call me by my channel name. That's oh, okay. I didn't want to dox you. Gotcha. You got it. We can give you the last word on this, Riley, as I think you were about to respond to Sean before I jumped in there. And then what we'd like to do after that is jump into defunding the police. Um, no, I think that actually does, that like Destiny like captured kind of my – what I will say is that um, just like um, – uh, just on like the testosterone conferring a benefit. I think that is true in like the majority of cases, but like, um, I don't know, like this can be an entire conversation in itself. Is that like, how do we draw these lines legislatively? Um, because we probably don't want to draw it just based on like, um, did you like go through a testosterone based puberty? Because like, there are also instances like plenty of people who I know where they actually go through that kind of puberty um, and they come out on the other end and actually like even without taking puberty blockers, they aren't really conferred any benefit at all. And they end up being like, I don't know, like weaker than most is women. Right. Um, there's like more nuance to be had in there. It's why this is one of the more complicated topics, but we don't have to get into it if it's just going to be like an entire nother thing. You got it. So just just to point out, yeah, if there was no difference or whatever, like, you know, like I wouldn't have any separation in the leagues, but like we draw a bunch of distinctions in our leagues, weight classes, et cetera, et cetera. Like, but yeah, obviously there's no difference at all. I just, I don't believe that there's no difference, but obviously there's no uh, like unfair advantage, et cetera, et cetera. Then like, whatever, like ultimately it's like female sports that I don't watch anyway. So, you know. Gotcha. So we're going to jump right into it. Defunding the police. Good idea, bad idea, and not necessarily binary. So maybe it's just kind of like, well, maybe just to fund it a little bit, not too much. What are you guys' thoughts? Um, this topic is absolute unmitigated cancer, um, even more so than the critical race theory topic. 
Um, I think that for critical race theory, I think there are some good ideas there that we can have, but it's oftentimes sold with a whole bunch of other dumb shit. Um, and this topic feels exactly the same. Um, there's probably good conversations to be had about reallocating certain types of police funding um, in order to make the police more effective. It's kind of weird that we expect a police officer to also be a social worker that responds to domestic violence issues. We also expect them to be like a fucking animal control thing that responds to crazy dog attacks. We also expect them to, expect them to be like a, like a social worker that can respond to like mentally uh, deranged people doing shit. Um, and then on top of that also be like police officers. I, I, that's not realistic. Um, the, the, the great contradiction though, and the slogan defund the police is that 99% of the things that people ask for, like additional police training, body cams, um, you know, additional training to deal with a different set of issues would all require an increase in funding. So, um, I like, I, well, I can support like the ideas that some of the people have about behind defund the police. Um, but I think that the narrative has been ha largely hijacked by very far left people and very far right people to where people on the left will say shit like, you know, we need to get rid of the police entirely so that we can go back to Chaz and raping people and shit and whatever crazy shit was happening there. Or people on the right will say, um, you know, like uh, that the police unions are perfect. They just need more money, more power. We need to militarize the fuck out of all the police because blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I don't know. The, the, the answer I think is, I think that changing the purpose of what the police as an institution does, I think is good. Um, and then kind of shifting funding around to uh, resemble those changes would naturally follow suit. Yeah. Any other thoughts from anybody else? Oh, we should not defund the police. I, I bought a siren just for this, this, this intro. Don't defund the police. That, that is all. Gotcha. We might have something you all three agree on, but Riley, don't be afraid to disagree. If you want to throw your hat into the ring in the opposite direction, go ahead. Oh God. Do I want to be contrarian? Um, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be that contrarian. Well, I don't know. It depends. Um, so like the thing is, uh, so like my main issues with the police, like if I want to be complete are currently like legal issues. So like police use of force and what those standards should be, no knock warrants, police bill of rights, and like certain protections that are conferred, which they probably shouldn't have. Um, and things like that. Um, implementation, like uh, Sean, you and I have talked about before, um, like over-policing of poor POC areas. And then like, and this is like the weird thing, right? Is like a lack of training. Cause like, you know, when we look at certain studies and we see that there are ways, um, even if it's relatively small where police disproportionately negatively treat um, black people. Like um, I know that we talked before about the uh, study where it showed that like um, all else equal police will pull over uh, black people more often during the day. Um, but at night there's that difference goes away, um, seeming to suggest like a racial bias, but there it's like, it, it seems to be a lack of training. So the things that I want are like a legal or legislative reforms, um, and better police training. Um, so it's like police budgets need to change however they need to, to achieve these for me. Um, I'm going to be largely fine with however they're changed. Um, but that being said, right, I think that like um, if I want to like steel man the defund the police position, like if there are areas where we can demonstrably use some unused police funds to increase access to mental health care um, or related circumstances for where police are normally called but not needed, that would be fine to me. It's just that like um, when people bring up examples of like police being overfunded right now. They'll usually just show like flat stats for like, oh, X police department is being funded like this much. It'll be like a crazy amount. Right. Um, but there's no good way, as far as I can tell, to be able to determine like if that's too much or like how much of those funds go unused, because it could just be the case where police departments get like a lot of funding, but actually like they do have to use all of it or they do use all those funding. Right. 
Um, so it's like if there is, if it is the case where police departments are being overfunded to the point where um, they're not using some of the funds that they're funded and some of those things could go towards other things that police are normally called for but not needed for, I would support that. It just doesn't seem like the evidence exists to be able to substantiate that right now. Gotcha. Everybody feel good about that? Refund the police. No, um, I mean, yeah, so since nobody's really taking the position of defunding the police, I mean, we hear about some, like, reallocation of money from the police department. Um, public education is way more wasteful and oftentimes, like, way more money. So reallocate from over there. Like, th th that's all being wasted anyway. Um, as far as, like, racial bias in the police, I mean, the, the study that you cited or the the traffic stop data it's something like the discrepancy between day and night is between five and ten percent and if you look at that data set it's just like an excel sheet of traffic stops like there's no indication of who's on the road more often or less often at different periods of time and like you, like this is a situation where people see a gap and they fill that gap with racism rather than like actually study and determine what the explanation for that is i think police racism is greatly overstated i think uh violence by american police is significantly higher than uh most uh european counterparts largely due to the fact that we have guns and higher rate of violent crime not completely uh there are instances where you can improve police training sure but uh like you know you can't really do that i think uh destiny said it you can't really do that if you're cutting funding. You can't say train more, but also here's less money. So like, yeah, there's some police reforms that are good, sure, but a lot of, there, there's a lot of negative effects to the pullback on funding for the police that we've seen so far. And I think that in an era of spiking homicides, we should add more money into our police departments, not less. Um, I mean, to be able to respond to that, I mean, so with the study that you cited, I mean, my recollection from reading the study is that they they control for as many other factors as possible. So they'll control for um, driving, like how you know, like whether each person was speeding or not. Um, they control for driving records. They control for criminality. Um, so it seems like they do a lot more than most studies in terms of mitigating other alternative causative, uh, causative factors. And then to the idea that it's like 10 or 15 percent. I mean, like it did meet statistical significance. Right. Like that's not nothing. Right. Like and it's, it's like, 10 or 15 percent over like I think it was 100 million stops. I it was think like five to 10 percent. I don't I don't remember 10 to 15 percent. That's what oh, I was thought that's what you said earlier. If I misheard, then. OK. Um, but like the idea that like it's statistically significant with such a high count, like even if it's not like um, that, like not that big of, a, of an effect, like it does exist. And if the solution is to invest more in funding the police, then again, like I'm not really I'm agnostic on whether or not to defund or refund, just whatever is able to like mitigate that to zero or as close to zero as possible. So like if it ends up being the case that we just in order to be able to get better police training, then we need to invest more Then I'm on board with that if it's able to like reduce that number. Um, but I don't see why we would avoid having more police training um, if there is like a pretty substantial likelihood that it reduces that and other. I mean, like there's other like um, studies and examples of empirical evidence. They're able to demonstrate like police bias towards people of color. Um, but I mean, like that's not trying to say that like police are individually racist or anything or anything like that. Right. Like we all allow our biases to affect the ways that we interact with the world. Um, but it would seem beneficial to train police better to make sure that they 
that their biases definitely don't impact their line of work since they're one of the few professions that can take the life of another person in the course of their day-to-day life. Most people can't do that. So it would seem better to invest more training in them to make sure that like when that does happen, that these biases play as minimal to no impact in those kind of situations. Right. Um, I, I'm going to ask you for like an example of something else because um, I haven't looked at the like traffic's uh, the overall traffic stops uh, analysis, like from my recollection, like if you click the thing, it's just like an Excel spreadsheet of all these stops, which is a lot of stops. And then there's the analysis on top of it, but I don't remember specifically which factors were controlled for. So like, you know, I'll, I'll give that point to you on charity because I don't, I actually don't recall at the moment. And if you're telling me something different, I don't want to assume that you're wrong or lying, but like the New Jersey traffic study is a perfect example of this where they, they determined that according to population, they were over-targeting black drivers, but when they controlled for speeding, which is what they were being pulled over for, they found that they were actually under-targeting black drivers on that offense because black drivers typically sped more and had greater speeding violations than other drivers on the road at the same time. And also the reason I bring up the day for night thing is we know like a number of different things between blacks and whites are different in the United States of America or other racial or ethnic groups. So it could be the case that a significantly less proportion of black people are driving at night as compared to during the day compared to white people. Or, you know, there's more, not even compared to white people, but just compared to themselves. Like they might be driving more during the day than they would at night. Like, I don't know that, but that's like one of the things that you would look for and try to control for in order to determine whether or not there's a bias. You have to exclude the other factors in order to get um, what you're looking for. Well, then let me ask you this, because I mean, like, sure, like with any study, we can be able to say that, like, oh, well, there could be some other causative thing that wasn't actually evaluated here. But I mean, like, it seems to be the case that there's like a reasonable amount of evidence that exists currently. Like, and again, we're not saying like, or at least I am not proposing um, me individual here, Riley Grace Rashong. I am not advocating that we like defund or get rid of the police. What I'm advocating for is better training and investing in training. Like, that doesn't seem like a controversial ask. Um, when there's already a pretty reasonable amount of evidence to suggest that there's like, you know, like, I don't know, burdens of proof. Let's say that there's at least that we've met at least a preponderance of the evidence that it's more likely than not in some respect, if not others, that racism plays, or at least like racial bias plays like some kind of impact, um, or plays in some kind of way in how police conduct their line of work. Right. So if we, you know, if we find that, like, if that evidence does exist, criticize it as you might want to, um, I don't see a reason why not to take that as like a decent cause to at least try investing more in police training and then be able to evaluate from there like, oh, well, we've invested more. Let's do some studies to see if that reduces these numbers, do some follow up studies like it doesn't I don't see why not invest more and then be able to like evaluate after like if there's any causative relationship. Right. Because that would be the best way to know you know, like see like, all right, we're going to invest more in training. And then after we've invested in this training and we have some time pass, we do like the same kind of measurements. Is there any kind of demonstrable change? Right. And hopefully the number would go down. Like, I don't I mean, see any reason why we wouldn't do that. If something, if something like merits further study, I'm fine with that. But like we went from, um, there's a five to 10% gap between day and night in the amount of black people being stopped by the police to like me asking, well, how many like drivers in proportion, is there a similar change in the drivers to, well, maybe if there's a preponderance of the evidence, it might be indicative of this. It's like, sure, I'm down to like 
I'm down to like go into that and look further into that. I'm always interested in more information and more data. We should be skeptical of our police forces, but we moved from this five to 10% gap is racism to, well, maybe if, you know, instead of looking for this explanation to that, like we've like moved all the way down to like, you know, maybe it, there could be some bias, maybe. Well, it's not moving away. Hold on. It's not, it hasn't moved away from there, right? It's saying that we have this evidence that bias could exist. It seems like it's reasonably indicative of that. So let me ask the question, like, are you opposed to investing more in training? Indicative of that. Because it controls for other factors, which other people would normally point to in those kind of situations. Like who's on the road? I mean, it controls for like driving records. So it's not the matter of like, oh, well, black people are pulled, pulled over more because they drive worse. Like, no, that's controlled for. Um, and I mean, uh, there's other factors that are controlled for in the study. Um, that was like the main one, right? Like it's um, a really good example of like taking all else equal. It seems to be the case that skin color um, is like the main determining thing for why black people are pulled over more um, by police during the day than at night when skin color wouldn't be noticeable by police officers. Okay. Um, but and in that instance, here, I mean, like, here's, here's my issue is that, so what this study did is it looked at a bunch of traffic stops. Like it took traffic stop data from around the country. Now, because they were looking at stops, we know for a fact that they weren't looking at all of the cars on the road, because this wasn't something that the police were actively gathering information on outside of their job as law enforcement officers. So my main issue with this is that this five to 10% gap, and if it's 15 and I'm wrong about that, then I apologize, but five, 10, 15% gap, um, then I'll concede that, might be due to the fact that there could be a five, 10, 15, even 20% gap between the uh, between how the black community drives in the daytime versus the nighttime. But we don't know that based on the way that the data was collected from the officers. So like you're saying, it's reasonably indicative. It's like, no, you're assuming that, but like all we have now is a gap. We don't have an explanation for why there's a gap. I'm interested in looking for an explanation as to why there's a gap, but until we have an explanation, I'm not interested in crafting policy to solve a problem that doesn't necessarily exist. As for more training for officers, sure. Like I would support more training. A great program is in San Antonio. It's called crisis intervention teams where they train officers to spot signs of people in mental distress. I think that this program has shown to be pretty decent in San Antonio. I would support that in other departments across the country. I mean, it's not, it's not, um, all right. So when we're talking about like what the study is able to show and what it isn't, the reason why the study is able to conclude that it's reasonably indicative of racial bias is because when we're talking about trying to determine what someone's bias is, we're talking about inductive reasoning, right? We can't like go up and like measure what's happening in someone's brain at the time. Like that, that's an impossible thing to do. So we have to be able to make these kind of conclusions based on circumstantial evidence. And that's why in these situations, having as many controls as possible um, is able to help us better come to a conclusion about what someone's intent is, right? I mean, like, you know this, you say that, or I know that you've talked about like working in the criminal justice uh, system or working in the criminal justice field. I have clerked for the Maryland Attorney General's office, right? Like this is how we, in the criminal justice field, like determine someone's mindset or intent is by looking at circumstantial evidence. And like, yeah, there's always ways that we could be able to improve inductive reasoning because we can never be able to prove it to like 100% certainty. Like there's always ways that we can be able to improve and we should always try to improve. But this here is like 
pretty good as far as like most measurements go. And so like here, we can at least be able to use this to say like, even though it's like, we can't really criticize it for being a perfect measurement because there's never going to be an absolutely perfect measurement. Like that would be like applying a standard that would be uncat like that would be uncharacteristic to apply when no other study, like we can't even think of a study that could like do the thing of actually determining what someone's mindset but, or intent but, is. But we can, there's a reason I brought up the New Jersey traffic study because they specifically monitored the cars that they were not pulling over and the ones that they were pulling over for violations and compare that to the officer's actions. And that's how they determined that officers in that study were under targeting blacks based on the number of speeding violations and the severity of those speeding violations. So like, that's the whole reason I brought up the New Jersey traffic study. Hold on, can you send that to me? Um, I mean, if, if you look it up, you can find it. I don't have it like right in front of me, but I will uh, send it via Twitter DM. I'm just not gonna come up on my computer and pull it up. I think they've, so they've been going back and forth on like the traffic studies for a while. I don't know if they're at like a conclusive answer yet. Um, but I know that like, um, I think initially they tried to study veil of darkness and then there were conflicting studies on it. Um, and then somebody, um, the Finn Institute tried to do like a conclusive study on it and then they found no bias. Um, and then, uh, researcher, um, Horace tried to do a study where he controlled for, um, where like where there were well-lit areas and not well-lit areas to see if they could tease out if people were being pulled over more for more or less where they were black and then they did find a big bias um so i yeah i don't i don't know um and their bias was 15 percent in, in well-lit areas so I, I don't know where the research is on that right now it seemed to be the case that there's probably some increase in stopping but again like there are like there are so many confounding variables here that it's pretty hard to say definitively I mean, like right now, what I'm asking for, because I mean, like, I don't know, this is why I'm trying to like bring in like burdens of proof, um, because I mean, like, I don't, to be fair, yeah. real quick, just I think you guys are missing each other. I don't think he's saying that there is a okay, burden of proof that's not being met. I think what he's saying is that, like, let's say that it is the case that in a given city, let's say that um, 40 percent are black drivers, 60 percent are white drivers. But let's say black people, for whatever reason, tend to work night shift jobs. Let's say that at night, 75 percent of people are um, or, or I'm sorry flip that around exactly. Let's say that more white workers tend to work at night. Um, and you find that at night, let's say 75% of drivers are white and like 25% of drivers are black. Well, as the sun sets, you're going to be pulling over a higher proportion of white people than black people. But is that because of racism or is it just because a higher percentage of white drivers exist at night? So now, right. So if that was the case, if it could be explained by the difference in drivers on the road at different times of the day, then we will, we really couldn't say that we could attribute that to like a racism intent from a cop um, trying to pull people over. Right. Right. But yeah. I mean, like in this instance, um, I suppose, I suppose that the way I'm coming at this is because like, if that is the issue, like, sure, we could think of different explanations for why this statistic exists. It just doesn't seem like a really big ask to say that like, well, in the event where this is being caused by racism, you know, then what would probably be the best thing to do to have further study on this to resolve this question is to implement some kind of racism training, um, or like training in police departments, and then be able to do the same measurements after to see if there's a meaningful difference. Because if there's not a meaningful difference, there's either a problem with um, with the training as it's implemented, it's not accomplishing what we want it to do, or um, there is indeed some kind of other, like what we're talking about, there's some possible other explanation. But it seems like what I'm proposing would be like the way to figure out if this is causative, right? Um, or it'd be like one of the safest ways. And also it would be productive to do in the meanwhile, right? Well, I, 
the, the reason, uh, it's not just about this study. Like I find these problems often in the methodology and people on the opposing side of the, of the spectrum on these issues bring up because like you'll take like stop and frisk, which was a huge uh, issue for the left wing and might've been one of the things that knocked Mayor Bloomberg, despite his billions of dollars, also his terrible start with Super Tuesday uh, strategy out of the presidential election. And people would often cite that New York City is a little bit under 50%, or they might even be over 50% now, uh, Black and Hispanic, but 86% of the people stopped on the Stop and Frisk program were Black or Hispanic. Like They're like 86% to, to 49 to 52%, we'll just call it that. But Stop and Frisk is specifically like targeted to shootings. And if you looked at shooting suspects in the city of New York any year over the last 20 years, you will not find a single year where the suspects aren't 94% or higher black or Hispanic and many years where it's like 97%. So obviously if the police are using a ComStat system, which most police departments use where they're targeting crime geographically and people tend to self-segregate and the cops are going where the shootings are, they're going to be stopping people who live in the neighborhoods where the shootings are and therefore, it is likely for them to be Black or Hispanic. And honestly, 86% compared to 94% of suspects is under-targeting, not over-targeting. So like, this is like a constant theme I find in the stats that people present. They find a gap, and it's usually between population and between stops or arrests or crimes or whatever, and they fill that gap with racism. It's the re-implementation of the God of the Gaps argument, except with racism. Um, I think that what you're talking about, again, this goes back to like inductive reasoning, right? Because we can never be able to like conclusively know what's going on inside someone's mind. Like all we can do is be able to like make these kind of inferences. And sure, if there are studies that have kind of the issues that you're that you're talking about, um, then we could be able to say, oh, well, there's this other kind of alternative present or uh, this uh, this other kind of alternative explanation. But that's going to exist for any study where we're looking at this. That's why people usually when they're coming to these kind of conclusions, say that like racism is a possible explanation, not necessarily like the explanation um, that should really never be said in this kind of field, because we can never know with certainty or at least rather um, when we're talking about like are police individually racist in the course of their field like that, that's never something that we can like know with 100% certainty unless police are going around say, saying like I am racist right or we're able to have something that's like very clearly indicative of their intent. Um, but I guess here like let me just ask the question like because I like I, I do think like maybe there's agreement here like would you be opposed or are you opposed to just invest? Like, let's even say that we're investing more. Would you be opposed to investing more in anti-racism training at minimum, given this past year and given that a lot of people are not trusting of the police um, to be able to try and improve on the police if there is an issue? And if there isn't an issue to be able to um, show the public, like to be able to like, um, oh, reasonably uh show the public that the police are not going to make these same mistakes or that they're trying to not make the same mistakes that they're being criticized for in public? Oh, so two, two quick points. One, originally, yes, I was talking about some a gap in the data, but with the stop and first example, I was giving the actual explanation. Like the police use ComStat, they go to where the shootings are, which is just a program that maps crime geographically. And that's why there was a disparity. So that that one I was explaining, I did have the reason for that. Well, there, I mean, like that could be the example in like that study, but you don't know if that's going to be no, the it's case not, it's in not like a, any it's other a, related it's study. Not a study. It's people assert, people assert that the reason for the disparity is racism. And if you look at the NYPD's practices and they've done reviews of this, like this is how they target neighborhoods. It's not based on race, it's based on reports. 
And two, uh, like, would I support anti-racism training? I don't know if this is effective training. Like, a study on anti-racism training? Sure. I'm not comfortable with the term anti-racism because it comes from critical race theories. Like, if it's, it, and I don't think it's the same as, like, racial bias training, although they do overlap. But like, yeah, uh, like more conscious or community outreach, like I would be fine investing in that. One of the things that I've been an advocate for is the restarting of a consent search program that was tried in St. Louis in the 90s, where um, parents could actually call the police if they worried that their kid was involved in a gang or might get into a shooting and the police would come and search for contraband, remove that contraband and not make an arrest against their kid, right? Because obviously parents aren't gonna tip off the police without you know, with the fear of their kid being arrested. Like I support a program like that because it builds trust between the community and between the police and it helps get guns out of the hands of kids. So like, yeah, there's certain programs I would support to build trust back with the community. I don't know if anti-racism training specifically is one of them. Well, I mean, you can call it, I mean, like if you're not comfortable with the label of like anti-racism training, then you can call it racial bias training, like training which would be specifically geared to mitigate any possible um, police bias um, in terms of executing police, uh, you know, in, in terms of conducting police activities, right? I mean, if it were effective, I'd support it. Like, if it's proven to be effective, I don't think that it is, but sure, like, you know, try it. Why not? Like, All right. You got it. With that, we can, everybody feel good? Any last words from anybody on that? No, I don't think so. Superb. I thought we were going to get more examples. Oh. I have I have all this this thing. Well, I mean like I um I think I like I gave you the examples I relied on um kind of like when I was in Kenosha. Um I think you should I remember giving you my card that links to like a lot of the sources I was relying on. Usually I use that one because it's like a pretty strong example. Um but like yeah, there's other examples if you want to look at those. Want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description. We really do appreciate them. As always, we want to ask you to attack the arguments instead of the person. And Dylan is also linked in the description, folks. Also, many debates on his channel as well. And we are really thankful. Dylan, I am really thankful for you. So sorry for turning you down on those questions earlier. I did not mean to have you sit for so long, man. But I, I hope you've enjoyed okay. I hope Fuck you've enjoyed him. listening to it as much as I have. And I those questions, Dylan, we are ready for them as we jump into the Q&A. And so if you've got them handy, please take the lead on the Q&A and getting us started. Sure. So the first question is to Sean. It's on the first topic. Kim Crenshaw's work, especially her concept of intersectionality, is consistent with sociological evidence and does not rely on storytelling. Since it is a foundational work that does not have the weakness of other parts of CRT, should it be taught? Is Kim Crenshaw a critical race scholar or an intersection? I don't. Um, I am unfamiliar. Um, I believe I Crenshaw mean, was one of the founding people for CRT. It was my understanding that she was one of the people that started. I thought it was Bell and Delgado and it's really hard to hear you, Sean. I think that your oh. mic maybe went down a bit. I thought it was Bell and Delgado. I don't know. Um, I'm just looking at Columbia Law um, for apparently she has a page there and, this sh and it says that she's a pioneering scholar and writer on civil rights, critical race theory, black feminist legal theory and race, racism and the law. I mean, like, I don't know her work, so I would have to examine it. But okay. Okay. Um, is that... Okay, we can go into the next question then. Uh, okay, to uh, Destiny and Riley. 
Do you think that the concepts taught around CT- CRT are too high level to be taught in public schools, K through 12, I assume? A lot of it seems like you need a background, knowledge, and sociology or philosophy that most grown adults don't have. Um, this is why I think it depends on the specific aspects. So this is why I was more interested in like, I, I don't think that like just like um, just writing something off because of like a foundational author is a legitimate way to approach it. I'm more interested in the ideas and the implementation of those ideas. I think that there are aspects of critical race theory or aspects of how critical race theory wants us to look at society that are easily implementable at literally every level of teaching. Um, so for instance, the idea that somebody that speaks in um, AAV is not an idiot, or the idea that we do have a pretty Eurocentric view of looking at history and that we can like exaggerate or not exaggerate, but at least highlight the achievements um, of like other scholars in different fields. I think that these are ideas that you can do in every school. And we already do that to some extent. I remember even when I was in Catholic high school, there would be like paragraphs in our book where like little known like um you know woman mathematician worked on this project or whatever um so like i I think that that's fine in terms of like these broader like like critical views of society or criminal justice i don't see that ever happening outside of like maybe some maybe like a special high school classroom i I don't think like a sixth grader is going to be like you know like well here's a critique of you know critical justice like like i I don't think that's going to happen um so yeah i guess it would just it would depend on what aspects of critical race they were going to talk about should be taught at different levels Okay. <clears throat> For Sean, do you, why do you think that racial sensitive, uh, r- racial sensitivity training is bad? Oh, I, if this is a question that goes back to the critical race theory portion of it, I think I try to make it clear that racial sensitivity, um, civil rights history, like negative histories of America can all be taught separate from critical race theory. I think I explained why I have issues with critical race theory like separate from those things. So I don't think racial sensitivity necessarily is bad. It depends on the context of the training. It might have like no value. It might have the unintended consequences of making people um, have more negative use about race, but it depends on that. It's not bad on its own. That's a weird question. Okay. Uh, and James, if you have any questions for Riley and Destiny, uh, please feel free to jump in. A lot of questions from uh, for Sean. Uh, so I'll throw one more. Uh, do you believe that history education in the United States is neutral? This is uh, has to do with the first topic. I, I mean, like, that's a broad question. Like, history is taught differently depending on the school district in the country. So, like, neutral as in what? I think they're asking this uh, in reference to the conversation you were having with Destiny on different perspectives on the, on, like, uh, history being fact and fact-based and the different perspective conversation having with destiny. They're I mean, asking we, like we, if it's neutral. We, we agree that it comes from like the historian and like history is one of the more subjective studies. So like overall history is less neutral or less objective than like a math or a science. Um, but in the nation as a whole, again, it's down to the school board. Like, I don't even know what that means. Gosh, I'll jump in with is a that question. for anybody or is that just for... Uh, if you wanted to respond to it, you could. Yeah, there there is no uh, absolute frame of reference in anything. It's funny because I, we should know that in history. We, I mean, we even learn that in physics, right? 
Um, I, I think part of special relativity was getting rid of the notion of like an absolute frame of reference and shifting that over to the idea of like an inertial frame of reference. And history is the same. There is no absolute frame of reference. There is no neutral viewpoint of history. A true neutral viewpoint of history would be an accounting of so many facts that it would be impossible to keep track of them all. You always have to kind of like pick and choose like what part of a story do we want to tell w when we engage in history. But that's not like good or bad. That's just that has to happen. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to make sense of anything. Word. Dinosaurs have feathers now. And that's like, I'm not about that. I choose to ignore that and go with the Jurassic Park dinosaurs. Well, that's Juicy. This one coming in, and I think that when they use the word they in this question statement, they're referring to critical race theory. So just to give you the context and what part of the discussion this is about, they said, example, if a black man beats up an Asian woman in New York City, the critical race theorists, or they put they originally, will blame white supremacy for X, Y, and Z reasons as if that black man has no agency for his actions. I don't think the idea is blaming the black person. I think actually a lot of this, it's funny because we say that like CRT like rejects like uh, the civil rights movement, but that that the framing of that like super reminds me of uh, Martin Luther King, um, white people's most favorite quoted black person. Um, when he talks about riots, Martin Luther King unequivocally condemned riots throughout the entirety of his life, even up to the point of his death. However, he also he would always say that it would be immoral of him to only speak of the negative side of the rioting and not to the conditions that give rise to the rioting. Um, I think that when we look at things through like a critical theory lens, I think that it is speaking to the same thing. It's not the idea that like, oh, you know, people are stupid, they can't control their actions. It's more like, well, you know, we have this particular thing that occurs and we can also look at why it occurs too. It's really ignorant to only look at one, one part of that equation without looking at it holistically. And I, I think it's important to separate like white guilted people and progressive media from scholars and critical race theory. Like, sure, there's excuse making for poor behavior, but would they say that specific thing is because of white supremacy? Some would, I would assume, and some wouldn't. Gotcha. And Chalice Pierre, thanks for your question, said, if an MD medical doctor supported a conspiracy theory, does that now define the field of medicine? The link is what's important. I don't know exactly what context that refers to, though. I, I think that was in reference to me talking about Regina Austin and her praise and her, her excuse making for the prevalence of conspiracy theories within the black community. Mm. You bet. If you'd like to respond, you or if anybody would like to respond, you can. I, I think it's a problem when scholars excuse all manner of behavior. Um, for and in critical race theory, it's in reference to black people. And like, and then they come up with their own conspiracy theories or endorse conspiracy theories to uh, explain their inconsistencies. Gotcha. And then I will ask one more for Destiny and Riley, and then I'll kick it over to you, uh, Dylan. If you have any more questions in particular, I think you said you had a load for Sean, but this one comes from Father of Hair. Says Destiny and Riley kept asking AJW to disprove or show something wrong with critical race theory, but that's not how the burden of proof works. They need to provide the evidence and then support it. I don't wait. Did I, I don't think that I actually said to like disprove it. Um, what I was advocate, what I was asking for was like whether or not there was anything like any aspect of critical race theory, which has merit to it. Right. Um, that's, that's a different question because right now the allegation, as I understand it, um, and Sean, you can correct me if this is like not repre not representative of your position, but my understanding of your position is that because there are some people who have advocated or who have been a part of forming critical race theory, that therefore all of it is without merit. 
and that seems to be a really big stretch. Like, you know, like I said earlier, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, when there are other, when there seem to be other aspects of critical race theory that could have merit to it. Like that's why I'm talking about. I mean, look, you can find some merit in like whatever. Like, I'm not saying that there's nothing of value at all. Like, a, like you know, unequivocally. But again, it's not like some people. It's like the foundational writings, like what what they say that critical race theory is all about. I'm fundamentally opposed to. So like, I, I feel um, like you keep coming back to like this person said that, but that wasn't my point. But so. well, can I ask the question then? Because this is something I was thinking about then, but I didn't get to ask. So like. You said that, like, um, so, like, the people that you cited to, uh, well, first, I mean, like, so, like, Kimberly Crenshaw seems to be another person who's, like, a foundational writer. But then, like, even if we're looking at the people that you cited, um, are the things that you're citing to the only things that they wrote about? Or are they, uh, or are there other things that they wrote about which do have merit, which people expounded upon? I mean, because if there are other things that they wrote that do have merit and that were expounded upon by later people who ended up rejecting some of their more problematic aspects, then it doesn't seem like there's, like, sure, like, there's a problem there, but it could have been resolved, like, within the academic literature. I mean, if you, like, The Rooster's Egg is a book. That's why I said, like, in from her book, obviously, there's more things in there. I believe it's a, it's like a series of stories or essays, however you want to say it. So, yeah, obviously, they wrote more stuff. Right. Right. So, it seems, so, I mean, like, we can criticize part of the literature and not say that all of it's without merit, right? Like if she went on to write other things which had more merit than just like, oh, I'm mean, just in the basing. This is considered like a big book and it's full of like these kind of stories, but like, I mean. But like, do you know that that's all that she wrote? Like she could, yeah, I mean, she wrote it like, you know, she, I didn't say it's that all that she wrote. Like the book came out in 1989. I assume there's plenty of, uh, of other writings um, like beyond that. Like, Okay, well then, would it be reasonable for if other if she wrote other literature not just based on stories that other people relied on that had the kind of academic backing that you're looking for, then would that be fine? I mean, yeah, if like if she wrote things that like better fit what I what like I determined to be academia, then sure. Like I feel like I'm getting asked a lot of these questions. Like, like here's a problem, but what if that problem didn't exist? Would you be on board? It's like, yeah. I mean, if my issue with the program was gone then sure well i mean like since you're just focusing on her as like a foundational author and so like if she contributed to like you're saying the the way you're presenting her is is she contributed to the literature in only one way and usually people don't contribute to like the entire body of literature in such a way as you're talking about in only one respect that's what i'm talking about like it would seem out of character we've got to move to the next question go ahead dylan if you have more for sean Sure. Um, I do have one for Sean. Um, one second. Since the big focus of the funding, uh, the police is based on the fact that public services uh, uh, serve the black community better than police. Shouldn't we focus on new public services to help black people rather than funneling more money into the police, i.e. reallocating resources? Are reallocating resources? Yeah, I don't like this idea of like investment, which people wrongly label government spending. Uh that's going to help better than reducing crime is, is not the case. Like if you want people to invest in these communities, you have to lower the crime rates. Like we, there's actually a, um, I think it was something like 17 um, Walgreens recently closed in San Francisco due to shoplifting because the district attorneys stopped enforcing shoplifting. Those are stores that operate on low margins. So they move out. Uh, The people who work at those stores end up losing out because there's no effort to control crime. 
And then what ends up happening is stores that have higher prices in order to compensate for the shoplifting uh, come and take their place. So like this is one of the ways that uh, crime ends up driving poverty. Like you have to deal with the crime. Like nobody's going to want to actually invest in a neighborhood that has high crime. Or there's going to be less investment and higher costs of investment. Gotcha. This one coming in from Hydrup, huge fan of you, Sean, says, in my opinion, Sean operates from logic and not emotions as well as Sean can take on 100 lefties. All right. Thanks for that. But don't worry, Dylan, there's some love for you. Not here says top left is pretty cute. Dylan. Next question, Spart344 says, my preference for a particular debater is neither, I don't know what this means in terms of whether or not this is a reference to something that, what, whether or not this is brought up, they said, my preference for a particular debater is neither Nyenya or Naya. What? I'm confused. Do you guys know what that means? Oh, Nya or Nya. Okay, gotcha. I got you. Is this South Park? Um, no. very important. Okay, next one. Hydrip, thanks for your question. Says, gosh, yeah. Sunflower says, Riley and Destiny, are you familiar with the fiasco at the Evergreen State College a few years ago? Do you think critical race theory had anything to do with it? What, what was, can you refresh me? What was the fiasco at? It's the thing that Brett Weinstein became a thing for. You know, oh, that shit was all cringe as fuck. I don't know why people do dumb shit like that. Um, I don't know if that, I think you could argue that that's like an offshoot of people who were bought into critical race theory. Sure, you could. Riley Ford, I'm, I'm guessing you're also against I'm it, not familiar don't... with it, so I'm not going to. That not gonna was the, on. maybe you heard of this? That was where um, I, I think, I'm trying to think what this stemmed from. I think historically, I think there was like some day where white students haze black students from going to school or something. Or maybe it was just generally like black uh, students weren't allowed to go to school or something. No, no, no. It's it's the day of absence, which is a reference to a play where all the black people who were marginalized or all the marginalized people in the community just showed up and it showed the oppressor. Or didn't oh, show didn't up. show up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. And yeah. it showed the oppressors like how much they're actually dependent on the people that they're treating like trash. Yeah. And traditionally and then, Evergreen would observe this and like have a mock day of absence for minority students. But one of the organizations at the school decided that they were going to flip it, but order white people not to come to campus. And Brett Weinstein wrote an email saying that this is not in line with the idea of it. And then it led to a whole bunch of chaos. And honestly, one of those, a lot of that is like the infantilization of children like it might not be like critical race theory ideology might have played a part, but a lot of it is like we treat college kids like they're babies and we cater to them and like they they need more hardship in their life. I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I just but the that that day, um, Brett Weinstein's response to it is basically he basically got fired, I think, right, or was forced to retire or something. Gotcha. This next one. Dylan, let me know. Just jump in, actually, whenever you whenever you have one. But this one from Got it. NFL Sports Talk says, both, you could say, a two-pronged question. Did, they asked, did black people enslave other races in history, and does critical race theory teach or acknowledge that it, uh, black people had enslaved other people in history? Well, Yes, they did, obviously. Like, we're all descendants from slaves and slavers if you go back far enough. Um, as far as critical race theory teaching that, I 
have to be honest, I don't know, but I believe that they do based on the fact that I, I was reading something that references uh, Slavs and the origin of the word slavery. So it appears that they at least on some level acknowledge different types of slavery or different slavers throughout history, but I'm not 100% sure. I have a question for Riley and Destiny. Um, what are the downsides that you see of critical race theory? Um, at least for me, there seems to be some speculation. So like, first off, um, like, and there's absolutely, I'm, I'm not going to dispute that there's a lot of people who advocate for critical race theory who have come out with some really weird takes to me. Um, that like, uh, the reason why, like, this is an argument I've heard a couple times from people who seem to be pretty big in the field that like, um, the reason that racism is perpetuated nowadays is as a consequence of trying to prevent the rise of communism or in the pursuit of like anti um, in the pursuit of like anti-communism. And that seems to be like really weird, um, like trying to like integrate this idea that like because um, I agree that like that forms of systemic oppression exist, um, that they disparately impact people of color, but then to impose like. Um, in some respects, this this like intent that like, oh, the reason why it's being imposed is for like anti-communist purposes. Um, it seems to be just like a step further. And also the idea that like um, there, there are some people who will say that like um, white people, well, there, there are some people who will say that like, um, like the, the really bad version is that like white people are not necessarily inherently racist, but that they are complicit in the system because they're not motivated to try and get rid of racist structures by virtue of the fact that they benefit from it. Um, and so some people will take this and run with it, say like, oh, well, white people are inherently racist. Um, and while that's not something that like, um, and I would never like agree with that idea that like white people are inherently racist. And that's the way that some people end up interpreting it, which I think is harmful, um, even if there might be some merit to the idea that like, you know, when people are born into a society and they're and they end up be, like uh, benefiting even from unjust uh, structures, that they're not going to pay as much attention to those structures. Um, yeah, there are other issues, but I mean, I guess it's just like kind of like some of the framing issues that I have issue with. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely offshoots of really weird, like us versus them mentality that can come or people thinking like all. Um, there was an article we read the other day about the, um, oh God, what was it? This It's like the psychotic, the psychotic intrinsicness of whiteness or something. I don't remember. And it was a lady that gave a speech at Yale. And um, holy Christ, that article went really, really, really far in some directions. And I mean, like any theory, like people can run off and do dumb things with it. You could do it with intersectionality. You could do it with patriotism. You could do it with literally anything, economic schools of thought. So, I mean, yeah, there's always like problematic things that people can take from theories. Our goal is to minimize the bad and hopefully capitalize on the good. Gotcha. Any other questions, Dylan? I'm sorting through mine, looking for one for Dylan and Riley or um, for Destiny and Riley. I have a personal question. What's with the skeleton? Honestly, what's with the skeleton? What what skeleton? Oh my god! How long has that been there? Who knows? This next one coming up from. Thank you very much for your question. Topher says, "As for math, if you learn the process and practice it perfectly, then you will always result in the one correct answer. Process is greater than answer. If you." What? So uh, let me know if they are. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who it's for. I know that this was. I remember this in the conversation, but I'm not sure. Uh, they say, oh. as for math, if you learn the process and practice it perfectly, 
then you will always result in the correct answer. Process is more important than the answer. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, the overall process, like, you know, because it gets you to more answers, I guess, is better than any individual answer. I guess that's what it's a reference to when we were talking um, about the math's destiny. Yeah, probably. I mean, like, I remember when I was thinking this, I don't know, like, it is very important to recognize that, like, in math, also in other fields that, like, um, because as I remember the the conversation, the basic idea was that, you know, we want to teach other ways to be able to get to the correct answer. I know that, Sean, you brought up the idea that, like, oh, well, we don't want to teach just, like, any way to get to an answer because some ways might not be better than others. It's like, no, we want to probably focus on teaching, like, different ways to get to, like, correct answers. Like, of course, we want to get to a correct answer, but they're, you know, to be able to recognize that there are other ways to be able to get there. Like, in law school, I'll draw an ex- like analogy to like my own experience, right? They make a very big deal in exams that like if you just give the the answer, then you'll fail every exam, right? Like the most important thing to be able to show in the field of the law is how you get to your answer. And there's never going to be like one objectively correct way to get there. There's just better or worse ways to be able to get there. Um, so being able to show like variety and how people get to those answers, like it, it seems like there'd be some like diversity of thought and how to be able to get to those correct answers so it could be uh, to be able to demonstrate those especially if they intersect in some way with um you know different people of color or like um you know famous people of color who have contributed to those fields this is a related one spart 344 says so diverging or disagreeing they say the journey of math is about logic and following the process which is not up to interpretation um, I mean, it depends on how deep you want to go there. I, generally, he's probably correct, but if you want to be pretty pedantic, that's not necessarily true. But I mean, sure. I, but I don't, I don't. In the way that he intends it, I don't think anybody disagrees. I don't think you're going to find a critical race theorist arguing that, like, well, you know, according to black people, two plus two is five or something. Actually, the 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 person who wrote that Oregon uh, curriculum, I think, was the person on Twitter doing the two plus two is five thing. I I would have to it's see the entirety of the argument, but I seriously doubt it's as simplistic as that. Yeah, I, I could be wrong on that, but um, it, it's somebody Gutierrez if we're talking about the same thing. But um, yeah, look, I, th- I think we got like a very niche in there. And I don't disagree with Destiny on we should teach different methods on how to do math. I remember we had a kid come in like fresh, fresh off the boat from Taiwan. And he had a way of doing um, factoring that they teach you over in China. It's just better. And like they don't teach it correctly over here. Like after seeing it, it's like a staircase method. It's pretty. It's pretty dope. So like yeah, like different methods as long as it gets you to the same result are fine. All right. Gotcha. T Newberry, thanks for your question. Says, hi, high school history and ethnic studies teacher here. Critical race theory is very pervasive in education. What do you all think the goal of critical race theory or critical theory in general? is as far as i know uh like they say more equitable society but to deconstruct society but like as far as i know among scholars they haven't like concluded on what the final uh society is supposed to look like like it's a work in progress so yeah um a lot of people yeah, so say I mean, communism but like I, uh, let's let's leave that out of the debates it's nobody brought it up yeah, so I mean, like, um, I, don't know, I mentioned this earlier that like critical theory broadly is supposed to like look at like it's it's prescriptive in nature, so it tries to figure out like how to be able to improve society, like what Sean said. Um, so it seems to be the case that it tries to recognize like, okay, so if we have these systemic inequalities in society, then like what steps can we be able to take to actually realize them? That's why um, 
you know, one tenet it seems to be of critical race theory is um, that we should oppose colorblindness, at least in the way that a lot of people mean for it to say nowadays where it's like um, a lot of people will invoke this idea of like, oh, we should all be colorblind. Um, not because they necessarily believe that'll actually lead to better outcomes, but because that gives them the excuse to be able to avoid dealing with larger systemic issues, right? Critical race theory seems to say in this instance that like actually colorblindness is not great because it basically means that we can just avoid dealing with underlying issues that would otherwise go unresolved. Um, so in that case, like actually resolve the issues so that we can move towards a better society as an example. Gotcha. This one, I think the way they've interpreted you, Destiny, is that I think they don't think that uh, you believe in ob objective truth at all, maybe, but they, which I don't know if that. Don't the problem you when that. you use terms like objective truth is the reality is that there is a whole bunch of epistemic and metaphysical assumptions that people run around with on a day-to-day -day basis, and they believe that they have the world far more figured out than they actually do. There's two ways to solve the arrogance of an average person's way. Either one is spending a whole bunch of time on a fucking philosophy Wikipedia, or the other is to do a fuck ton of mushrooms or LSD. Thankfully, I've done both of these things, so I can tell you very confidently that a lot of people have an idea of what is objective truth, but if you spend just a minute of like self-reflecting or thinking about things, um, you find out that like a lot of things that are a certain way could be another way. It's entirely possible. And there's a lot of things that we just take for granted. Like the nuclear family has to be the only way. We're... No, there's tons of different ways to raise families. There are community ways of raising families. There's tribal ways, or there's a whole bunch of ways of raising families. Or like the idea that like male and females, how we divide like ourselves. We could, we could sort ourselves a million different ways, depending on if we wanted to. Or like education has to be done for the first 20 years of a person. Like, there's, you could learn through life. There's a lot of different things. Um, the, the only reason why I push back when, whenever I hear somebody utter the phrase like objective truth is because usually that quote unquote objective truth, what they really mean when they say that is, this is my subjective lived experience and I can't fathom something differently. I'm not accusing Sean of doing this. I'm just saying that like a lot of the times when people, in case that's what it felt like, I'm just saying that sometimes people say like, oh, like you just reject objective truth. To some people like objective truth are literally just like these subjective cultural phenomenons that they're always subjected to. And they think that that's the only possible way that society could be. That's all I'm saying when I challenge that idea of subjective or objective truth. Gotcha. I mean, so you'd probably... So if I was talking to like a philosopher and he, well, there's like, I, I can't answer that. I'm sorry. There's like 20 different levels of what, like, do you believe in objective truth? Like, well, do, can we, is an, is an external reality knowable? I would argue no for that. But if we were to move past that context so that we could have like a, an epistemically meaningful view of the world and somebody say, is there objective truth? Well, I would say, yeah, with respect to like certain axiomatic systems, can we say that there are certain logical truths that necessarily follow employing like some form of prop logic? Or yeah, there can be objective truth. But if we go a step further and somebody's like, well, historically speaking, you know, the North was good and the South was bad. Is that an objective? Well, that's not an objective truth. Like, this is a historiography. Like, so no, you know, I don't even answer that question. It's, that's a tough one. Okay, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> this is well, it's a fun question. They so it's a you could say with regards to history much further back than the the Civil War. But they say if if there is no objective truth, why don't we teach creationism? Because when we so on the level of do we believe in like deductive logic given some set of premises will a conclusion deductively follow that seems to be a thing that everything believes in one number two do we believe that there is a knowable external universe yes that seems to be the case as well number three if there is a knowable universe can we collect data about it and generate conclusions based on deductive logic that seems to be the case as well if we believe in all three of these things we have enough logic to get off the ground the idea that we shouldn't believe in creationism so there okay gotcha and then Topher, thanks for your question says Clearly, they do subject themselves to criticism. So I think this is for you, Sean. They say, 
considering AJW stated that CRT teaching plans were rejected in California. So I think they're I mean, saying that rejection was a form of criticism. I mean, that's like, there's a difference between scrutiny from like academic disciplines on the university level where this stuff is developed and a school board or, or the state department of education saying, we're not going to go with this curriculum. Uh, we're not going to go with this curriculum because included or not included in their um, definitions of historic oppression was anti-Semitism, which was one of the reasons why that California curriculum was rejected because it didn't acknowledge the existence of anti-Semitism. So yeah, I mean, it, that's not the same thing, but sure. Gotcha. Any over there, Dylan for Sean or anybody? Uh, no, no, not nothing, uh, nothing else. Gotcha. This one coming in from just fresh off the press. Spencer Harmon says, my boss's wife had to create a critical race theory teaching plan in order to renew her teaching license in Nashville, Tennessee. And she never mm-hmm. taught it. She had to learn it, though, in preparation to do so. Any thoughts on this? Uh, send that story to uh, stopk12indoctrination.org. Uh, you can remain anonymous, and I might make a video about it and get paid money to do so. Gotcha. Now, Tizzy says, I like Destiny and Riley. However, I think that Bell is one of the more reasonable CRT scholars and that they should know this. And then says Bell's wiki page goes over the six foundational principles. The I just I challenge I don't challenge that Bell might have said dumb things. I just I challenge looking at like a foundational author in a field to uh, either accept or dismiss that entire field. Like I and we didn't really get to talk about this because we're mainly back and forth between Riley and Sean. But like using that is actually, in my opinion, a really bad um, thing that that ironically, some critical race theorists engage in. So um, there, we, we watched recently a guy named Adam Neely was going over um, some scholars related to music theory that talk about how the foundation of a lot of music theory is racist. And some have even made the argument that there is a guy that if you studied music, we perform a form of like Shankarian analysis is like going over music. And some people argue that um, that Shankier guy, that that guy was super racist. So we should throw all of that out just because of that. And I, I think that if I was to take Sean's arguments that we ought to throw out critical race theory um, because the foundational authors are bad. Well, fuck the foundational authors of the United States constitution. Some of these were slave owners or supported slave ownership. So like that, that just, I just, I challenge on those grounds, the idea that a foundational author ought to be the person that I go to, to see whether or not I should accept or reject the tenets or the implementation of some ideology because the foundational authors of a lot of different things have been super fucked in the head, but that doesn't mean that there aren't valuable contributions that they could have made to the field or that there isn't a field that we might be able to squeeze some sort of value out of is why I rejected that or why I would reject that. Yeah. I mean, I think I think your comparisons are kind of like silly because like the critical race theory was founded in the 70s. It's not like this isn't well documented. People argue over does this writing from Thomas Jefferson actually mean he felt kind of this way about this or that all the time. I mean, people still argue about the separation of church and state and whether or not that's implied in the First Amendment. But like at least that has the benefit of like back in the day. Like David like David Bell wrote most of the stuff in the 70s. Like you know, and I know he was a civil rights lawyer before, or he wanted to be a civil rights lawyer, but a lot of the major cases were resolved. But like we have a better understanding in a newer discipline. Uh, so I mean, it's not a one-to-one comparison. I take your point. Um, some people would argue that filmmaking is racist because D.W. Griffith, uh, who made famously *Birth of a Nation*, is the guy who invented cross-cutting. 
Now, cross-cutting still gives us the illusion that two different events happen at the same time in film. So I think that portion stands the test of time, but people have made the same case for that Nazi lady filmmaker and how she expands and contracts crowds. I think their skill sets transcend them being bad people, but they are foundational people in films, but I don't think that makes film itself or film language inherently racist. Yeah, although there are racist aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Got your question for Sean. Are there any things you think are good about critical race theory? Uh, it's, it's called um, CRT. I like nice abbreviations. Got you on this one from William Kurt says, why does it matter if a historical account is biased or not taking other perspectives? The point is that we should strive for historical accuracy. There's there, that doesn't it. So history is what we think we do, but in reality, we engage in something called historia, historiography. Um, so history, there's like, imagine, imagine you asking me, um, Stephen, what did you do yesterday? Like, if I were to give you a factual account of what I did, then it was like, well, in the morning, this was my blood pressure. These were my brain waves. These were the processes going on in my body. Um, these are like all the biomechanical motions that I made to lift myself from my bed. This, like, there's like a trillion different facts that I could account for in like the first like three hours of my day. But that's not really what you're asking me. You're asking me to pick and choose from that day a collection of facts that I think you might find interesting or relevant. And this is what we do when we engage in history. History is not an accounting of all of the facts. History is telling a story using a selection of facts. That part is important because there, there are normative decisions that we make when we choose which facts do we tell that's what we engage in when we engage in history so if if nothing else happens from critical race theory and it's all completely thrown into the garbage the one positive thing that i would hope that critical race theory can encourage more people to understand is there is not an objective telling of history everything is a narrative and everything is a story and sometimes it's good to look at things from other perspectives if for no other reason because it enriches your own life it gives you like a different way to look at things whether we're talking music or other aspects of culture or even history and there is a lot of value in being able to look at things from different perspectives in your personal life in your academic life in your work life so gotcha and chalice pierre thanks for your comment question says the hostel gato is that one of your guys's memes from your own next this one from not here says sean needs our help making a spirit bomb raise your hands what's a spirit bomb it's a dragon ball z reference amazing tizzy thanks for your question says i like destiny oh we got that one Oliver Catwell says, James plus Dylan divided by controversy equals hit the like button. Thanks for that support, Oliver. We appreciate it. And Spart344 says, for Riley, the body of literature shows trans women have massive advantages and the International Rugby Board banned trans women in international matches. I mean, I'd like to see the body of literature because I've read the body of literature and that does not seem to be the case, or at least it doesn't seem to be the case after you have uh, situations where trans women go on hormone replacement therapy for a sufficient amount of time, or if they've never experienced like testosterone-based puberty at all. Maybe we're looking at different literature, but I feel like I've read a lot of it, if not all of it. I got two questions. Uh, The first question is going to be for Sean. Somebody is asking for a clarifying thing. Do you get paid by an organization to make anti-CRT videos? No, I don't get paid by an organization to make anti-CRT videos. I was referencing okay. a series that I do for the Freedom Center. I'm saying when I make videos, I make money, but time is my living. Okay. The next question, how do you think everybody in this discussion's ethnicity has affected how they approach this topic? 
Um, I mean, like I reflect on this a lot, like it, it does suck because I mean, like one of the core, t- so like the idea, um, as I mentioned earlier, like one of the ideas of, of CRT is that like, um, uh, it's preferable that you have people of color who are talking about these kind of issues because they have the, but the reason why being that they have lived experience to be able to check their arguments against so that they're more likely to be able to make the right arguments as opposed to like it, that that's like the single determinative factor. Um, so I mean, like, I would say that like I'm trying to the best of my ability to be able to understand the arguments that other people would make if they were able to check it against their own lived experiences. I can never know that with certainty. So, you know, there's, if someone wants to call me out and say that like, Oh, well, Riley, you didn't make this argument that any reasonable black person would have made if they were in your position, um, then feel free to call me out on it. But I mean, like I've genuinely tried to make like to the best of my ability make the arguments as I understand that they would be made by other people if they were in this position. Um, as a Hispanic, I feel like the whites in the chat disagreeing with me have, have offended me. Okay. I do also want to clarify, we do have two Biden voters on the panel. Just want to throw that out there. Get back to James, if there's any questions you have. You got a bubblegum gun says police are unconstitutional. Abolish them. Anybody agree with that? Next up. Police are, wait, what did that say? The police are unconstitutional. Abolish them? <laughs> that's right. That's, that's weird. It's state okay. constitution. No. This one, Morgan Gray says, only criminals would want to defund the police without the police killings would increase by 75% and no one would face any punishment. I don't um, think anybody here was arguing for the total abolition of the police. Right? I, I wouldn't say only criminals. Uh, like, There's a lot of wealthy progressives that like think it's a great idea because maybe they've never seen a crime or a criminal face or anything like that but in montreal they had a police strike and i think shit went down in like 12 hours people should look into that story like it was it was full-scale rioting in under 12 hours so not not a great plan but there's definitely some even criminals are like ah ah, guys relax we kind of need some of the police juicy riley any thoughts uh no not really I mean, like, yeah, I wasn't arguing for defund the police. You got it. And thank you very much for this question coming in from Amaretto. says, police are police are corrupt and in most places are overly funded compared to other parts of society. Also, civil, civil forfeiture is bull. Defund the police. Um, uh, civil forfeiture is bullcrap. It's a taking under the Fifth Amendment. It's not treated like that. The idea that your property is guilty of a crime is nonsensical. That should be getting rid of. Um, as far as police are bloated budgets, I mean, the most bloated budget of all time are public education. And I find it really funny when people show the police budget and always public education is higher, but they conveniently cut it off right there. Like they do that with New York City. They're like $6 billion for the NYPD. It's like $25 billion goes to our public school system. And mostly, well, I mean, like, plenty of that's wasted. I mean, like, that's, well, I mean, like, you don't have to make the argument. I mean, like, that's kind of like a whataboutism. It's like, oh, well, why are you talking about this this issue when, like, there's this other issue that's complete, or that's, um, that's unrelated, but, you know, there's a lot of funding there. I mean, like, two problems could simultaneously exist, right? Um, but the problem for me, as far as like um, the o- like being able to say that police departments are overfunded, is that there's not really a good metric, as far as I'm aware, for saying that they're overfunded. Like you could, it could be the case that you just have a lot of police departments. I'm sorry, I just caught myself. Like it could be the case um, where police departments do get a lot of funding, but it could be like justifiable under like some kind of metric, right? Like it could be just the case that like oh they just they just really need all those funds, um, and there it 
just as far as I'm aware, there's not like a good way to measure that at the moment. Gotcha. And just several more questions, folks. We definitely can't take any, any more new questions. We've got, uh, we should be able to wrap up before the three hour mark. And so we do want to get our guests out of here as they are busy people. We do appreciate them. And so run Quick reminder, folks, their guests are linked. Our guests are linked in the description as well as Dylan and Brian says CRT is not capitalism, not Marxism, not a cat. You see, in order to understand CRT, we must go to feudalism. It's powerful stuff. Next, they also said thanks, MDD. Thank you for your kind words. And uh, again, paying that, that thank you forward to the guests. Kevin De La Riva says, hey, Sean, you should debate Mike from PA. He's an intellectual powerhouse when it comes to defunding the police arguments. Um, I mean, all right. I try not to associate with people from Pennsylvania, but I'm, I'll make an exception. Gotcha. Julius Great says, there is a miscarriage of justice every day. Granted, what's the proper proportion of POC to police interaction? What if certain areas have more POC crime? I mean, if you look at the numbers, the interactions are usually determined by crime and certain people of color in certain areas commit more crime, depending on the crime. Gotcha. Bubblegum Gun says, okay, I'm not reading that. Deprived Dolphin, thanks for your question, says, not reading that. Topher, thank you very much, says, Sean, we've been giving, we've been giving increasing money to police for decades. At what point would you conclude it isn't working? And that there may be better ways to reduce crime. I mean, we've seen one of the greatest historical drops in crime over the last few decades. The, since the 90s, crime has dropped like crazy. Um, like We've seen the pullback of certain units and certain funding uh, since 2014. I believe Vox has an article about this. And they estimate anywhere between one to 6,000 extra murders occurred in this country over that like five-year span due to the the reforms pushed on the police and it's only prevented maybe 300 police shootings so like i i would think when you see spikes in murder across the country maybe maybe pulling back on the police not a great plan gotcha this one from best of ballers oh interesting says for destiny and riley is humor featuring race or trans topics completely off limits um, I mean, as far as like, trans, just because like, I know that I've had to grapple with this, I, it's not off limits. It's just that usually what happens is that people will try to use like a veneer of humor as a way to get away with saying just like really terrible shit. Right. Like, um, usually what will happen is you'll have like a comedian who will just come out and instead of actually like trying to deliver something that's like funny, they'll just like say a bunch of like really like blatantly transphobic shit. Um, like they'll just be like, they'll tell like some kind of transphobic story like, Oh, you know, uh, there was this person at the store. I'm, I'm just making this up, but like this would be like an example of like something out here, right? Um, it's like, oh, I saw this person at the store and they looked like a man, but whoa, they're wearing a dress. How wacky and funny is that? Is, am I right, everyone? That's so weird. Nope, nope, nope. That's giving you some comedic music. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, so like the, the point being there that like um, usually it's like when it, whenever it's used in that way where it's just like it's a thin veneer, for just trying to say harmful shit, then yeah, that's off limits. But like, no, obviously there's ways to be able to do comedy, which incorporates these ideas. Um, I would just rather be actually funny. 
Gosh, you know, it's, it's, it's customary when somebody tries to think up a comedic presence, uh, a premise on the spot that you guys back her up. Like I was the only one who did that. I'm with you, Riley. Gotcha. And the the Godfather says for Destiny, I don't know, what are butterfly ballots? They say, are butterfly ballots a part of CRT? Uh, no, I think that might be a meme. But... Gotcha. Okay. Time Rift. Juicy question says, this is our last one, folks. Says, Destiny and Riley, if you found that there was more racism after critical race theory was implemented in the country and actually caused harm, how would you go about dealing with that issue and they say dilute crt or would you say that real crt hasn't been taught yet or something else um i mean like as far so like first we would look at like the measurements like how is that measured like what is more racism but i mean like sure like assuming that there's like some kind of measure that like the total amount of the racisms in the country has gone up after implementing these kind of educational policies then it's like okay there's probably like some reason to be able to say that like there's a causative relationship here. So we'd probably look into like, all right, so do you like some sort of study on like, what was the cause there? Is it something inherent to CRT or is it just like a matter of how it was implemented and then try to resolve whatever was the causative relationship there or the causative factor there? Gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't know if CRT is supposed to fix racism in the country. I mean, you'd look at like other educational outcomes, I guess, to figure out if it's working or not. Like if grades start going down or something, that's a problem. If people, if grades go up or if people are more conscientious about certain issues, um, I, uh, I think designing a metric by which to see if it's successful is pretty important. I think with a lot of social programs, we don't, we don't do that all the time. So, One last one, because I'm so curious about this. They say there is no police violence towards blacks compared to what it was like in the 1980s. Is, was it worse in the 1980s? Is there any I evidence mean, for that? Saying something is worse back then doesn't mean that it's acceptable now. If the violence is not justified, it's not justified. But I would assume that because police departments used to be more corrupt, the further back in time you go, and economic corruption was a huge part of that, which isn't the same today, then yeah, they were probably way more violent. I mean, like, there still is evidence that police departments are pretty corrupt even today, right? Like, there's been surveys um, that, like, uh, there's a decent number of police officers who are currently serving where they are aware of um, other police officers that they've worked with um, committing infractions, like, acting outside of, you know, the sorry, um, acting outside of what is acceptable or legally permissible for police officers, and yet they go on to not report it, right? Um, like that still exists today. We could say it's better today than before, but like those problems still exist. Uh, it, it depends on the corruption. When I talk about the decrease in corruption in the police department from the 70s on, I'm talking about economic corruption, like the taking of bribes or favors or whatever. And that was usually a, uh, a consequence of police police officers being like a really terribly paid job back then. So like officers weren't paid enough to even live in the city. Like now what you're referring to is what's called noble cause corruption where cops like, you know, uh, an often like archetype of this is Clint Eastwood's character in that movie, Dirty Harry, where cops like color outside the lines in order to get um, like results. And I do agree that that corruption may not be on the increase, but it's not um, looked down upon the way that economic corruption is today in police departments. Quick question. I know I just wanted to ask this one quick. It was a big one from chat. CRT or LED? Which one do you prefer? LED lights. Gotcha. Destiny won't answer it? No. I don't no? know what it means. So. That's why I said LED lights. You got it. 
Well, we want to say, folks, Riley and Sean and Destiny and Dylan are all linked to the description. We encourage you to check out their links as we really do appreciate them. It has been a true blast with you guys. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate you. Thanks, everybody, in the chat. Hope, as always, folks, want to encourage you, attacking the arguments, be your regular friendly selves, not attacking the person. We do appreciate you no matter what walk of life you are from, folks. No matter where you are in the political spectrum, black, white, gay, straight, you name it. We're glad you're here. We really do appreciate you hanging out with us. And so with that, I'm going to be back with a post-credit scene in just a moment, letting you know about upcoming debates. But as for now, thanks so much to all of our guests. It's been a true pleasure to have you tonight. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.